The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code DIESHRING for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom. And as always, I will let my guest introduce himself now. Hi, I'm well, your anonymous uh, software engineer. Although I should first point out that, you know, the reason I'm not anonymous is, you know, I don't, my comp- the company I work for is totally not involved with any of this. This is all just my own opinion. So just don't want to any complications, really. Yeah. Hi. Uh, nice to be here. Yeah. Making sure you cover all bases. I think it was the laptop OEM guest who, though was anonymous, also said all of his thoughts are his own in case someone were to figure out who he was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would generally be okay with being public, but just uh, let's avoid complications for now. So I'm not even, let's like, really sure to start too much here because this was really envisioned as a more, open-ended episode. Actually, you know, the first place I would like to start is what made you reach out? Because I think, if I remember correctly, you reached out to me for this one on being a guest. Like, what made you want to be a guest on Broken Silicon? Or what did you feel you could or needed to add to the conversation? Um, there's, There's actually several things involved. But the first time I actually felt Actually, I, I feel like I could contribute something um, to help explain. Is I was li- I was reading, uh, sorry, listening back to your back catalog of interviews, and you had a interview with a server engineer, and he. One of the things mm-hmm. that came up was how companies are very conservative about migrating to new hardware and all that sort of thing, but it never came out why this is the case. You know, what is the underlying? In your opinion, right? Uh, I th- I think you could because because I because I think what what he said my my memory is especially the first time he came on which I think was like I don't know right like episode nine yeah. or something like I I think he said that the reason they're conservative is for two reasons or at least this is how I would describe or translate what he said which the first reason being it's predictable so. Like when you go, when you stick to one company's set of products, even if, like Intel, and even though Intel may only be increasing performance by like five to 10% a year, that's an easily predictable five to 10%. You can just go, okay, so every three years we will upgrade and we know exactly, you know, how much server space, how much energy it will use, and uh, what level of performance gain we will get. And they, you just plan, you plan 20 years ahead because of how predictable Intel was at a certain point. It was that. And then it was also just how much work goes into like kind of programming your product specifically for their servers, right? Their motherboards, their platforms, that there are differences. Even when it's like going from like Ivy Bridge to Haswell, it's still much simpler typically than going from Ivy Bridge to, you know, an Epic platform. And that 
And, and, and I can just speak from my end, working in the automotive industry, moving to a different company for any part. There's just all these little things you have to learn. Like, this is how they handle the bills. This is who you call to get information on this. This is how they handle shipping things. There is so much involved switching to a new supplier of anything. And that that's, that's one reason they were also very conservative in staying with Intel. So I just, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to jump in. That's my understanding of what he said on why these companies are conservative. But what would you say? Like, what made you like have something extra to say? Or do you disagree with that? No, that's definitely part of it. Although software is also a very significant part of that, particularly if you have internal software. And, you know, even if you, if we just stick with Intel, say, you know, they tried to bring out an mm-hmm. entirely new ISA called Itanium, and that just died. You know, so why couldn't Intel essentially persuade customers to shift from Intel to Intel, just a different ISA? Instruction set architecture feels. Um, so, you know, the part of the problem is, well, there's lots of things. Partly is the hardware changes, but partly is, well, perhaps the biggest problem is support. Um, so commercial support. So uh, pretty much any yeah. company that has internal software projects will have that. That software will depend on other third-party software, so you know Oracle database, for example, or you know various Microsoft products, and they will typically have a lot of dependencies, and you need all those things to align, everyone to be uh, agreed, just to be able to do it at all. But even then. Mm-hmm. Um, companies are conservative. They will typically not be running on the latest version of any software. But as soon as you bring out a new instruction set architecture, uh, like Itanium, then you know mm-hmm. typically what's released is the latest. So that forces companies both to right. upgrade their software and their hardware at the same time. And that's just too much for most companies. And you know, it's funny. I'm going to have another guest on in the coming month that I was actually having an early, you know, touch base conversation with the other night. And he said very, very similar things, right? That they just upgraded to Windows 10. And if you were to switch from Intel as a supplier to AMD, it's not, you're not running Ryzen on Windows 7, yeah. right? That, like, as an example. And, so like if you don't do that yet, now you need to upgrade to Windows 10 as well, which is something that, yeah, I mean, the server engineer we've had on a few times is very much so hardware-centric yes. and less about the software reasons. Yeah. And just to give an idea of how conservative things are, so right now there's a lot of complaints, shall we say, about you know pricing of new hardware uh, because a lot of people... Mm-hmm are very keen to get it as soon as possible. There's lots of early adopters. It's the exact opposite in the server space to the extent that you will actually get paid to be an early adopter, or at least you'll get a discount to be an early adopter. So, you know, imagine getting paid by NVIDIA to, you know, get a 3080. That's how different Mm -hmm. the market is. And that's the sort of thing that um, caused Itanium to fail because what they didn't do is, although they provided backwards compatibility with x66, it was very poor. It was just too slow. Customers could not have, they did not have a smooth upgrade path. They effectively had to take an initial performance hit before they could get any benefit. And that was just a non starter for most. And as you said on the hardware side, you know, even though um, AMD is software compatible with Intel, most companies are just reluctant mm-hmm. to move to new hardware. So that whole 
issue of, you know, why are companies slow to move and migrate explains, you know, why mm. Atenium failed. It explains why AMD is only making slow incremental progress in the server space and various other things. So I thought that was, you know, something worth digging deeper into and particularly the software side, which is where I can provide quite a little insight on, I feel. Although I suspect the details might be a bit boring. You know, we'll be the judge of that. And don't worry, if it is boring, I am sure so many people in the comments will be more than happy to let you know it was, in addition to reminding you they still didn't get their new graphics card or some other stuff like that. Because uh, that is about half of the comments right now still, even if it's related or not. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad you're on to add some extra flavor to some of these things that have been much more hardware-centric. And, and we will get to more gaming-related or at least gaming-tangential questions because I do think it is incredibly... I, I won't even just say important. I, I found it very useful and illuminating to have people that typically don't talk about the gaming side, but have experience and and the knowledge to be able to talk about what where we get our performance from in games, what the hardware that powers games, even if that's not what you usually do, because you usually can go into a situation, look at a set of hardware. Maybe it's not server this time now, it's a, a console, and just looking within in completely fresh eyes. You know what I mean? If all you've done is designed, like if you're someone who's designed or worked on servers your whole life, you can still understand the components in a console and then tell you why certain things are happening without any of the baggage, you know, that we typically, that I just cannot get away from when it comes to talking people who have had more gaming experience their whole lives. There's just always some point where it seems to turn into there's a fanboy reason they think something or there's some baggage from an earlier designed piece of hardware in gaming that makes them think things are going the way they were. I think if you've been working on non-gaming hardware, you can still talk about it just as much, but you just have none of that baggage. So I'm really excited to have you on for that reason. Even though... You know, even though typically you've warned me ahead of time, you you typically don't look at gaming hardware. Uh, not the deepest details, although on the software side, it's actually very interesting looking at previous experience on the server side and operating system side in terms of the type of optimizations pe- uh, game developers are doing these days. It reminds me a lot of things on the server side. And for similar reasons. Right. Because, you know, multi-threading, all that sort of thing, parallelism efficiency, scalability, it's very similar set of problems. So before we get a little bit too ahead of ourselves, though, why don't you start telling us about, you know, you're anonymous, so you can't probably use too many, you know, uh, proper nouns, but perhaps you can tell us a rough idea of what your background is. Right. So I've been a programmer uh, most of my life. I started programming when I was about nine. Uh, Actually, part of Part of why I got into programming is actually my mother. She started programming um, a long time ago. When my mother started programming, um, punch cards were bleeding edge. Imagine that. Um, Yeah, I think my dad (laughs) worked with those too as well. Oh, no, I remember. In early college, my parents, who are like, I believe, yeah, they're both over the age of 50 now, like they learned in some of their more advanced classes how to like, 
how to how to program a computer by spending hours punching cards and making one long ribbon and then putting it in. And they were tested to see if they made the computer do the correct thing. Yeah. Yep, that's how it used to be. Yeah, mm-hmm. in, in my case, so I was always very interested in the programming side, the software side. And I took a you know, university course. I have a master's of engineering from a university in London. Um, I've mostly stayed in London, although I have occasionally worked elsewhere, including a brief stint in the United States. But when I was getting my degree, at the time, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do afterwards, but I had actually had vague thoughts of you know, maybe becoming a games pro- programmer. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, this was the early 1990s, and that was right at the start, the very, very start of the internet boom. And I actually got a part-time job at an internet startup. And I found this much more interesting than actually university work I was doing, even though it's supposedly one of the best courses in the country. I, I just mm-hmm. really liked it. Um, and I almost failed my degree because I spent too much time working, so part-time. So you know, after my degree, I generally stayed around London, mostly working for internet-related stuff. Um, although I've done a very lot, wide variety of things, you know, um, so I did spend um, several years working for a company that uh, created TV programs. Um, so I was working on the behind-the-scenes stuff there, the, the software, and including servers and things like that, managing them uh, set up. Yeah, I've done. I've worked on a very wide variety of systems, different operating systems, different types of you know processes. I've done many different types of computer languages. Um, there was a time when I spent you know, several year period where most of the time I was writing in assembler, which is, I think, was very, you know, something I definitely was glad I did. I think it's a very useful thing to know, to actually understand the computer down to that level. Yeah, there's very few operating systems and platform, sorry, mainstream, I should say, uh, platforms that I haven't uh, used. Um, you know, there's in the embedded space, things are completely different, but um, yeah. I-, I was going to say, you know, I was looking at your history here, and I mean, it seems like you have, I mean, you could say non-professionally, it goes over 30 years, but you have at least 25 years of professional experience working on ARM, working assembler, working um, at some news magazine websites, working uh, at some, you know, kind of gaming and 3D graphics related Companies. I mean, it really seems like you've had a small hand in almost every type of thing you could program for the most part. Yeah. Um, not so much the client side. So a little, mm. um, I've done some of that more like privately rather than professionally, but mm-hmm. m- more on the server side. But yeah, a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> well, well, and I'll be honest, you know, um, I have people reach out to be, as you can guess, probably, you know, guests on Broken Silicon all the time. And sometimes it goes somewhere, sometimes it doesn't. It seemed like you had a lot of experience, but I really wasn't sure what to expect, right, when we first started talking. But it did seem like you actually had a lot of really, really specific and interesting things to say about just about any subject I threw at you. Like in my curveball, I usually throw, at people who work in more pro- like professionally programming things, it's just throwing random ideas about console performance at them because most, for whatever reason, no one ever pays attention to the consoles, uh, the actual hardware or the programming that goes into them. And so, but you you were able to really give a lot of interesting ideas 
Uh, and I think you're even working on possibly an article for the Moore's Law Z website, you know, both one having to do with ray tracing, I believe, but then also one having to do with what may have taken so long for AMD graphics cards to go multi-die like Zen, right? So you you actually had, you know, there's some people that reach out and say they want to give their input on things and then they don't really have much to say, frankly, that I haven't seen everywhere else already. Whereas you seem to actually have a lot of specific things to say about any question I ask, and really quickly. So so I guess what I'm saying is for everyone listening, you do pass the sniff test. You seem to know what you're talking about. Uh, well, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I've always had very broad interests. Um, and, you know, I could probably, we could probably discuss random science stuff and I might be able to... Uh, say quite a lot, but uh, also computing. But we have to yeah, be careful. Yeah, that. Let's you not get, get that. computer nerds talking about t- science. It's just, it's just. I remember once me and Cortex did that, an episode became a three-hour-long thing out of nowhere. <laughs> like we'll just start talking about futurism nonstop. I'll just get to a reader mail. So you know, as with all of our guest episodes, you know, patrons can uh, submit questions ahead of time. And Rufnik has a question here. He says, "Hey, Tom and Dan." Well, Dan's not here today. We have a guest, Rufnik, so you got that wrong. Or you guessed wrong on who's here. And he, But he does ask, what are your thoughts on tech sites that post YouTube videos on the best CPUs for 2020 or 2021 and then proceed to say they are only going to discuss CPUs available and not necessarily the best or what's coming soon? They're not saying the logical top CPU is, but due to demand, only this CPU is available. Instead, this is the one you can get as it's available at the time. They also know that the CPU recommended is sometimes on an absolute platform. So I'm going to skip ahead here. Um, it's a little scrambled. I personally think some of the question, but he basically, to boil it down, I think what Rufnick's asking is that he finds it very frustrating how samey all of the reviews and recommendations are for on all of these tech review websites and that if you can't take into account this current situation or how things can change in the next six years, then what's the purpose of even evaluating a best of? Because nothing could be more important than how well something would age or what you can even actually buy. I mean, so so I guess just to kind of add flavor to what you were saying about like, what what do you think about, because you, you, you were watching other tech channels, right? So... Like you're seeing what's going on with people like Hardware Unboxed and Gamers Nexus, who typically are trying to do all of these reviews and recommendation videos every week in a time where a lot of people are frustrated. Like, like how do you see this whole situation? Uh, there's kind of two sides to that. So the first on the specific question is, you know, when you're doing a best of, as long as something is notionally available somewhere, I think you can count as that as being something you can recommend because you should be forward-looking in recommendations. So just because it's not available mm-hmm. right now, I think that's a if it's if someone can legitimately buy it somewhere or has been able to recently or can be reasonably expected to be able to buy it in a very near term future, I think that's something you can say, you mm-hmm. know, that's something you can put in a best of or recommended uh, category. Just because supply is tight, I think that's a little unfair. On the just kind of product review in general, um, I was somewhat involved with, um, well, not so much product review, but just this sort of thing, but about 20 years ago, so more of the early 2000s. And so 
You did a lot of server yeah, testing, yeah. right? Uh, actually, and not just testing, but uh, background articles. And some of the background articles I wrote even, you know, had you know university professors come up and say, you know, can I include your articles in course? Um, sorry, details, introductory materials for course, courses because you know there was this kind of level of detail just wasn't available anywhere. So we did some of you know you mentioned hardware and box. We did some of that and. This was all, you know, this was before YouTube even. And I would say, for the most part, I'm very happy with things like product reviews. They're very professionally done. They're comprehensive. Um, I feel like mm -hmm. that if you're trying to address consumers, that's kind of like job number one, is trying to give them useful, meaningful data and um, information, recommendations, things like that. And I think that's actually about as good as it's ever been. I'm not saying there isn't room for improvement, though. There's, mm -hmm. you know, there's always various problems, particularly with things like benchmarking. So, yeah, I would, I would actually say that's, that side is generally very good, and I think we should appreciate what we're getting to a large degree. I think that's, you know, doing that amount of work is non-trivial and requires real effort. When you get to more subjective things, it becomes, always becomes trickier. At a certain point, I fear that a lot of these tech review websites come off way too robotic and that they're still putting out the same types of videos in a time where it's 10 times harder to get something and it comes off as entirely tone deaf. Like you would think that you would change your content a little bit or be willing to do some videos where you just say none of these are worth the money. Because I think, and that's something I've been saying, and, and it doesn't benefit me to say this. Like, it benefits me to act like nothing's wrong and say, buy everything. And I'll get more, by the way, is I will get more sponsors if I tell you to buy things, <laughs> right? Like, it's in my best interest to tell you to buy things. But I think, I think that's where a lot of tech review channels are falling flat right now is that they're literally putting out the same videos they would be putting out any other month. And it just comes off as entirely tone deaf. And I think that you that's when you go, well, maybe you guys should look into making other types of content when no one really cares about this type yeah. of stuff. Uh, yeah, I think, well, it, you, probably a good point to actually say, well, maybe we should do something a little bit different. Or, you know, what can you do with your existing mm -hmm. hardware? That would be perhaps something useful. So... If you suddenly put a PC on my desk with a top-of-the-line graphics card and said, you know, play with it, mm -hmm. do what you, you're interested in, probably one of the first things I'd do is take some typical games and um, do some profiling of the games. So what's the CPU doing at a low level? What's the graphics card doing at a low level? There's all sorts. I have, it's not something I've done yet, but there's a lot of tools to help analyze your system. Uh, more from a programmer's level. And, you know, I've done that sort mm -hmm. of thing in the past on the server side, particularly. Um, so not games, but, you know, so why is this graphics card behaving the way it is? Why is this game behaving different to that game? Why is, you know, what is the real overhead of various little bits and pieces, such as ray tracing, although that's not quite a little bit and piece. Um, yeah, there's... All sorts of things you can do, and you know, depending on you know what you're used to, you would think of different things. I would very much have the mindset of, well, let's pull it apart and understand the performance characteristics of these games, these graphics cards. Where where does it come from? Where's it going to? 
Yeah, so let me skip ahead here then. I actually want to move on to kind of more open gaming hardware programming questions because I think that's kind of what we're starting to talk about here. So Manuel Nascimento, hope I said your name right, though I probably said it wrong. He asks, what work and how much work is optimizing a game to run better really involved? In the case of poorly optimized games, do you believe it is the case that it was just too much work to get running better or as well as some other people who have got it running with other games? Or is it the pressure to just release the game on time or earlier rather than later? How much of it is optimization and how much of it is a race against time when we see poorly optimized games? I would say the race against time is a very big factor. So... If you start thinking mm-hmm. about it from an economics perspective, how do games companies pay their programmers before they're earning money from the game? Well, they effectively have to borrow it or essentially get paid by a publisher in advance. So the earlier they can get that game out the door, the earlier they can start making money from it. So, it, And if you run out of money, you know you go bankrupt. So pretty much any project, the project managers want it out as soon as possible. They do not necessarily understand technical details. It's more of a black box to them, and most of them, unfortunately. Mm. And they understand timelines. They understand costs. They understand return on investments. They understand not going bankrupt. Um, So I think that's a lot of where that pressure comes from, is just, we need to do this in this period, else we're just not profitable. Or you know, we're not even necessarily viable as a company. Uh, I was just going to say, I have a low latency uh, programmer who should be a guest in the next month. And he was talking about how this crunch is not a gaming thing. I think there's a lot of people that act like the gaming industry uniquely has crunch. He's like, that, that's not true. All programming has crunch. All, 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 all of it. All programming involves a period of crunch. It's it's almost unavoidable for how th- how this works. It right? somewhat depends on the type of software you're talking about. So I think it's less of a problem for long term software, where you have regular sure. updates. Mm-hmm. That's I think there's less pressure because you can always say, well, this feature didn't make it for this release. Let's push it to the next release. So I think, yeah, it's it definitely. Uh, universal, but I think it's also fair to say and accurate to say that games have it worse, or rather games development has it worse. I think part of it is simply because a lot of games developers are actually enthusiasts, and they can be taken advantage of uh, because of their enthusiasm. There's actually similar industries, content creation industries, where they have the exact same problem. The the actual people doing the, the work are Real, real passionate people, and they mm-hmm. can be taken advantage of, and it's not good. I think a certain amount of that, though, is unavoidable. Would be the wrong word, but like when I worked at General Motors, my job was making sure at least large portions of the car were safe enough for people to yeah. drive. Right, so my job. I was the one who signed off that these seats, which are connected to the seatbelts, connected to the bucket of the car, connected to everything, are safe enough. I give my stamp of approval based on this testing that people won't die if they crash this car. And then in addition to do, you know being passionate about getting that right so people don't die, it's also that 
I have to make sure it gets done to a level of quality so that all of the other people, you know, this car launch affects the jobs of hundreds of thousands of people at this auto company so that it makes this company money so that all of these people bring money home to their families. It's a huge company. It's a huge organization. You know, at a certain point though, no one had to make me work overtime. I did it because I cared and I was always going to do it because I cared. No one put a gun up to my head. I chose to work harder because I knew what I was doing, to be completely honest, mattered, right? And I was passionate about it. And so I think there's just, I don't want to say always, but there is this level of crunch propelled by passion in the gaming industry, though, that no one's putting a gun up to their heads. They're just willing to work the long hours because they really care about what they're making. And when people care about what they're making, they put in some pretty crazy hours. I mean, I don't know how much of that is You know, like there's definitely, I think EA, especially like game testers, they definitely work them to the bone, I've heard. So that's an example of it being very bad. But I'm not sure how much of it is people being forced to, being taken advantage of so much as people taking advantage of themselves. And that if it was ever to get better, some people just need to realize, be realistic with their expectations of how much work they're able to get done in a given week, which is something I've come to terms with too, running this YouTube channel and podcast network is just like, Coming, one of the hardest things is coming to terms with how much work you can actually get done because I will work myself to death. No one needs to make me. You know what I mean? Or I don't know. Do you disagree with what I'm saying? Or <laughs> Well, to give a little anecdote, on 31st of December in 1999, I suddenly got a call up from my boss saying, can, mm-hmm. you help, can you come help us on this project that you weren't involved with, but we need some help on at the last minute? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I turned up. Uh, you know, I had other plans. But, you know, turn of the new millennium, get the call for help, I turned up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I guess going back to what we said, though, about what would cause a game to be poorly right. optimized, one thing that I want to point out is, and I think you said this initially, is that a lot of it really is, in my opinion, the time, Not it's not even crunch. I think, I think and, I, and again, I don't mean there's always crunch and it's unavoidable. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying there's always going to be a point where you're like, ah, crap. We, we, you can always use another week, can't you? There's all, it would always be helpful if you had one more week to program something. So there's always going to be this period where there's one month left and people work extra hard because they care. But the problem is when, yeah, like you said, I think they're required to release something before it's ready. Right. That it's you, it's not laziness. Oh, from what in my experience with anyone I've talked to in this industry, it's oh, the game has to come out by this time. And I actually think, and I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I keep I have to bring it up because it's the perfect example. You know, and uh, there'll be a link in the description about Cyberpunk 2077. Apparently, this game was planned to release in 2022 based on numerous accounts from people with inside the company. And Cyberpunk's response to that was. Well, you didn't talk to everybody. They did not deny that that's true. They did, And so what I'm forced to conclude then about the state of Cyberpunk 2077 is that even though it took seven years, that game probably wasn't really expected by most people working on it to come out till the end of 2021 or early 2022. And that I suspect their company was running out of money and yep. they needed to get something out no matter what, yeah. or they would go out of business. We've seen this with a lot of other games, by the way, where this thing happens where they're like, it has to come out by this time or we will go bankrupt or, for example, EA will cancel the project and fire us. 
right? Like something like that. And I think, and, and the truth of the matter is, I think what they should have done is just have a round of funding to get the final two years out because what they did is they lied. And as far as I can tell, there's they're going to be sued and I think they're going to lose the lawsuit. Like, because there's like public accounts now of them knowing it wasn't ready, that the E3 demos they showed were based on a build that wasn't in the game. It's very bad, but it's time. It, it's that they didn't have enough time and they had someone tell them it has to get done by now or we'll go out of business. That, that's what I think happened with them and what happens a lot of the times with these I games. had the exact same thought, very much. Um, you know, perhaps an investor left and they just had ran out of money because of that. Or an investor had been told that it would be ready by 2020 and, it, and you know, been lied to. That's, in, you know, it could be quite a bigger problem than um, just run lack of money. It could have been actual fraud, uh, for all I know. But mm-hmm. you know, I'm just guessing. Sorry, sp- sorry. It's looking a lot like fraud, by the way. <laughs> uh, and if they are, well, if it was, then you know, it's kind of you don't want you don't want to see companies and developers being punished. But on the same time, if you don't want to see people get yeah. hurt, is how I yeah. would put it. Like, I just for the sake of getting yeah. hurt, right? But on no the other hand, that. you do need a disincentive. You do need, uh, you know, warnings that, you know, this is not acceptable behavior. Otherwise, people just do it more. Um, so the only way to, the only way to get, um, you know, stop repeats of that is to make sure it's seen as not acceptable. Well, yeah, because if people learn they can get away with this, then everyone's going to do it. And actually, on a similar note, moving onwards from, you know, poorly optimized games, kind of continuing with this, another interesting thing I think we can talk about is I've found the more, because I think you've seen this for the past, well, since consoles existed, you've seen this argument of like the poorly optimized console port to PC. And when I've really dug into a lot of these ports, it exists. There are definitely bad ports like Dark Souls 1. Like just, but they admitted it was a bad port. To be fair, they said, "Yeah, it's a bad port." You know, we just did this because you guys had a uh, what was it like a Kickstarter for it or something. You know, the, it's the only reason we did this is to you know kind of see if we could do it. But I, I think a lot of times people confuse like Red Dead Redemption's performance on PC, for example, or Red Dead Redemption Two, I guess I should say, or some of these other games' performance on PC with the fact that. There's stuff going on in the consoles that isn't in the PC that's causing it half the time, and vice versa. Sometimes when they port PC games to console and it doesn't run well, sometimes it was a lack of enough optimization. But sometimes it's just because I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Bubs, your PC is not as strong as you think it is, right? Like one one example specifically is. The reverse of that is the CPUs in the PS4 and Xbox One, where it's like, why can't we get more 60 hertz games? And it's like, well, those consoles were designed with 1.6 gigahertz CPUs, so you're not getting 60 hertz games. You know, Doomberry writes in and says, I'd love to hear about the PS4, Xbox One release, and specifically how underpowered their CPUs were. It certainly seemed to catch some devs by surprise, and there, were, there are a few games from around that time which are known for being downgraded at release. Some big examples that come to mind are Order 1886. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, 1886 looked as good as the initial visuals I saw. It just ran at like 24 frames a second. Um, Watch Dogs definitely had some so, sort of a downgrade or something. 
Um, and uh, Dark Souls 2. Yeah, I can't speak to Dark Souls 2. I don't remember. I didn't follow that game closely before it came out, though. It says, what caused game devs to underestimate these consoles? Is the messaging from console manufacturers unclear? What? Hmm. I don't... I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think there's... You're asking a few questions at the same time. I think, first of all, when they do the release... The, as they call them, bull shots for games, they try to make the early trailers look as pretty as possible. So... You know, <laughs> I mean, that's what that is with like Watch Dogs and I assume Dark Souls too. But um, I mean, I don't know how, what what would you say to some of the questions he's asking here? Well, there's certainly uh, part of it is who set those expectations? Was it the consoles manufacturers? Um, well, um, so were they, say, pushing for 60 hertz frame, uh, 60 hertz games? Mm. You know, because they don't think they were at the release of those gens. Like, I don't remember. Like Killzone Shadowfall was 30 hertz. I think it had a 60 hertz online mode, though, I guess. Um, Rise Son of Rome on the Xbox was below 30 hertz. I, I don't remember Sony or Microsoft saying these are 60 hertz consoles. I just remember some developers deciding to try to make their game 60 hertz, and usually they ran it for. I, uh, that sounds quite plausible to me. I think actually that probably happened quite a lot, that they were aiming, aiming for 60, came up short, and either couldn't or um, decided it would be you know, better for them financially not to do the optimization. And I think it varied a lot between mm. the type of uh, developers we're talking about. Um, I think companies that, sorry, developers that had their own game engine have a diff- slightly different mm. perspective from those who effectively borrow someone else's. So if you're developing a game engine, you ha- you are going to have people who really know the insides, you know, deeply, and they've gone through probably a lot of more optimization and efforts than than the others. So they have deeper skills and often more resources. So it's the people who have the money who can develop the game engines, really. So I think those companies um, were able to push harder because they were able to optimize more. So if you're borrowing someone else's game engine, you can only optimize your work. You can't necessarily optimize the game engine itself, or it's a lot harder because you might mm-hmm. not even have the rights to do so. Uh, but even if you do have the rights, it would be a lot long learning experience to get that far into it, depending on you know what you've done before. If you haven't had to do that before, then that's not something you can do at the last minute. Um, and I think, and I've seen some interesting talks by games developers talking about you know the sort of optimizations they were mm-hmm. doing for that generation. And I think they still weren't really up to speed with things like multi-threaded optimization. They hadn't really done yeah. that properly until that level. And they were, I think, particularly games, sorry, console developers, I think, feel under more pressure to hit a specific target in terms of frame rate. So they want a standard mm. frame rate. Whereas I think on the PC side, it's just more acceptable that frame rate is variable, effectively. So I think the fact that hard... Yeah, t- they just throw it at your yeah, PC. Yeah, it's like, yeah, if you, don't get, if you don't get this or that, it's your fault. Choose different settings or get a better system or whatever. But when you're targeting a very specific known platform, and some people are getting 60 hertz and you're not. And you're saying you're going to target 60 mm. hertz. Um, yeah. I think that puts more pressure on you 
to do that optimization, to go the extra mile. And, you know, I think perhaps also that filters up higher to the managers um, because they know that if they hit that, you know, if they hit 60 frames refresh rate, that's something they Mm. can push and sell as, you know, we have this quality. And so I think in those cases, you see more effort and um, they will go through the learning process of, you know, how, how do we go from 40 frames a second to 60 frames a second? It's, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it can be just as simple as we actually need to, it's not that we need to change the, you know, the, the quality of the graphics, but we need to just get more out of the existing calls. We can look at what's, what we're getting out of them currently, and we can see all these spaces where this call's not doing anything, this call's not doing anything. So they can figure, well, if we can get everything to run at near optimum, then we can hit our target. But you then need to go, well, this is a software optimization problem and a multi-threaded software optimization problem. And if you've not previously done fine-grained multi-threaded optimization, then you you have to implement it. Um, it's not that this, this sort of thing didn't exist. It's uh, beforehand. It obviously did. I mean, it obviously existed in the you know play, pre, uh, even the previous previous generation. Um, so you know PlayStation Three and so on. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think they had gotten as far down the optimization curve as they could have. And earlier, I was saying, mm-hmm. you know. Are seeing things similar to what you would see in terms of operating system level optimizations. So how you do thread management, how you um, uh, try and avoid unnecessary locking, or you optimize the locking you do do. How you try and efficiently allocate, sort of break down the processing of an individual frame into chunks that you can distribute nicely across all your processes. Right. And, and actually pin certain tasks to like one thread or, or something. Well, actually, what most, um, or maybe even all games companies are doing this to, uh, these days are what they call a job system. But you explain it, you know, so for people listening, you know. You know, games companies are calling this, you know, job system, but, you know, I'd perhaps call it something else, but it's, you know, very standard way of doing multi-threaded optimization. I've actually done this uh, I think I did it the first time about 2010 on a uh, 2D graphics processing project. And what you do is for each hardware thread you have available, so general purpose hardware thread, that isn't, you know, if it's allocated by the operating system, you would ignore, you would ignore it. But, you know, your general purpose hardware threads, you have one thread available, you allocate one thread and you have it permanently running on that processor. Or at least it's, called pin to that processor in that it prefers to run on that processor so that all your threads are mm-hmm. in sort of like normal operations everything's nicely running in a consistent way and what they do is they simply connect to a common job queue and say give me something to do and they'll process it and they'll finish it and they'll go on to the next thing and they'll just do that as rapidly as they can and so you need to then so part of the problem then becomes, well, what do we put in the job queue? So if we start at the, uh, if we if we imagine the beginning of a frame, you would probably have a lightweight background thread, and when you have your VSync, you trigger okay, new new frame, 
they'd start processing. So you update mm-hmm. your internal content, you know, where things are moving. Have you had some kind of collision between two objects and all this sort of thing? What's the player doing? Um, all sorts of various things going on. And you update your, you calculate the next game state. So essentially what you want to render, and then you pass that onto the GPU. So that's, you can break that down mm-hmm. into a whole number of subtasks. And you want each of those subtasks to be small, but not too small. So there's a kind of Goldilocks zone. So if you imagine your typical, yes. say, okay, so if you're targeting a particular clock rate, you'll have, you know, let's say you want to complete everything within 16 milliseconds. You probably right. don't want any tasks that are um, more than a millisecond. That would be quite bad because, uh, if, uh, and if or if you do have any big tasks like that, you would try and make sure they get run right at the very beginning. Because if you have one straggler, mm-hmm. one little thread that ha- still hasn't finished, and you you get that fifteen, uh, sorry, sixteen millisecond mark, right? You would allocate that to like a one of the shall we say, one of the highest clocked cores first to make sure that one's yeah. not a straggler is yeah. what you're or, saying. That if task. at all possible, you would try and do that first. And so, and if you can't, you know, you will start having drop frames and then you would probably need to break down that task if at all possible or somehow re-engineer it so that it does, just doesn't happen. So if I could jump yeah. in though, like I, I think then when it comes to console ports, whether to console or to PC around a new console gen, I think especially, like if you think of this gen, I mean, the CPUs in this generation are just so much stronger than last gen that it's been a smoother transition. And what you had with the PS4 and the Xbox One is you were going from with the 360, a 3.2 gigahertz, triple core, six thread processor that, is now needing to go into, I mean, effectively the Xbox One had seven and a half cores for the game. I believe half of one of the eight cores was used for the OS. So you're now translating six threads into seven and a half threads that are at almost half the clock speed. And then again, with the PS3, you kind of have like seven cores, but they're really differently organized than normal moving to seven cores. On Again, a lot of people may not know, the base PS4 actually just had seven cores. One was disabled. So now you're moving to seven cores on the PS4, but the clocked half as fast. You know, so I think when you saw like things like Watch Dogs as an example I want to use that looked really, really good before the consoles came out, I think that's how they intended it to look and run on those consoles. I don't think they were trying to lie. I just think that then years went by. It took forever to get that game finished. And then it came, well, it's coming out this fall, whether you like it or not. And they didn't have time to do as to the metal optimizations as they thought they would have the time to do. And perhaps the CPU wasn't as capable of running at higher frame rates as they expected. And they had to ship a product. And that's why it didn't look quite as good. At a certain point, they just needed to crunch and say, hey, this thing just needs to run at 30 frames so we can ship it, right? I think that's what happens a lot of the time, especially games that are shown before a console gen comes out and that come out around the first few years of a console gen. Right. Um, And some of it was probably down to, you know, just what, does the platform provide? So certainly, uh, you know, I was just talking about multi-thread optimization and, you know, the operating systems of those consoles, you know, definitely from the PlayStation era, sorry, PlayStation 3 era and, you know, that kind of thing forward. They provided low-level things to help 
you know, have low, um, threads with little overhead and things like that um, and low-level primitives. But you need the stuff built on top of it to be well-calibrated, well-optimized. And, you know, certainly you know, that those sort of things would exist in Windows as well to a degree, but you're now potentially dealing with a whole different, significantly different software stack. It might, if you... if Say you're running a one game engine on the console and that's not available on the PC, you might have a very serious um, porting problem. It's essentially, you have to um, rewrite or create some of the game engine yourself or adapt it to an entirely different game engine. And that might have very different optimizations. Um, so that that would be you know if you have a scenario like that that would be very hard if you if you can keep to the same game engine on both it would probably be a lot easier. Um, well, actually, let me uh, throw this reader mail in then. Illyrium <laughs> writes in and says, "What's going on with Horizon Zero Dawn on PC?" Because I think this is an example of what you're talking about. He goes, "We have to waste some ten minutes every time we launch the game for the game to optimize shaders. Well, it's clearly underutilizing CPU cores, RAM, GPU, and SSD." Then they added pillar boxing on ultra-wide resolutions, whether there's a cutscene, even though it's in-game, not pre-rendered or anything. So there's no logical explanation for why they can't use the full 21 by 9 aspect ratio. I, I wouldn't assume that, uh, uh, my, my dude. Like, you say there's no reason they can't use the full 21 by 9 aspect ratio in a cutscene, but you don't know what's going on in the background during that cutscene. It may be in-game rendered, but they might be like loading a new section at the same time and there was something going on in the engine on the PS4 where they allocated this many resources to rendering this exact field of view. Like don't, that, that's a guerrilla game that was initially a PS4 exclusive. They do crazy tricks like that, right? When they can optimize to one piece of hardware. So when you see stuff like that, I really wouldn't assume there isn't a reason they had to do that. I'm not saying they couldn't fix it on PC. I'm just saying there's, there is probably a reason. I, they didn't just pull some reason out of their ass. There's probably a reason that they had the engine doing something at the same time. But I'm going to continue his question. And he goes, and then with the latest patch 1.1, they introduced a bug on all Radeon cards that randomly disappear, make whole forests disappear on and off. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say about that. That's just bad. It's especially bad on Navi 21 cards. How can we not? How can they let this happen to PC gaming, or what can we do so this doesn't happen? I mean, I don't, I don't know, right? You just got to vote with your wallets, right? Don't buy it if you think it's bad. Although I've heard, I don't know, when it first came out, it seemed like Horizon. I think kind of like Red Dead Redemption Two, people underestimate how much is going on on screen. Like, like in Red Dead Redemption Two, they're rendering like a hundred rabbits and snakes at the same time in the grass that you can because you pull up Dead Eye and you have to be able to see them right away. Like, you, you may not see everything going on, but there's a reason those games are hard to run. But but I mean, like, I, I don't know. What would you say about some of the things he... I, I gave my input on one of them. What would you say about some of the problems he's mentioning? And, you know, this is a game that was on PS4, I think, in 2015 or 16 or something, and then came to PC, I think, last year, if I remember correctly. So, so like, what would... Yeah, like, I don't know if you can give any input on some of these problems. Well, they're obviously bugs. I mean, there can't be anything else than bugs. That's just, you know, they clearly missed something in testing. And that's just shoddy and a lot of the things mentioned are just shoddy and that's just very bad i mean you know we're talking about cyberpunk 2017 earlier that's very kind of stinks of the same problem to some degree 
but you know also what you were saying about earlier about things happening in the background you know yeah there's a lot of smoke and mirrors that goes on in the background that you just that isn't obvious and that can certainly cause some weird things when you're working on different platforms with different uh performance characteristics yeah i've i've had some you know if we, if we're just thinking about you know more general issue of just quality and user experience i've you know i've had some Pain, painful moments myself. Um, so, for example, last year, mm-hmm. I was, you know, I saw on Steam that there was this game, you know, it, you could play it for a week for free. And it was a game I'd been interested in. Mm-hmm. And so I downloaded it, 100 gig, took ages because, well, I didn't have the best internet connection. <laughs> uh, finished downloading it, had to then download a whole lot of patches, then had to go through all this setup and configuration work, which took ages. Eventually, after a long time, got to start playing the game, and the character just was inoperable. Inoperable. It just tried moving the character around. It just went crazy, and it's like mm-hmm. I can't do anything at all. I literally, I can't even walk. Basically, your character, something that basic. Uh, the graphics were fine, but just the character movement. Just so the controls were completely messed up. I tried different things. Looked on the forums. Ah. Uh, after about two hours, I just thought, uh, I'm not going to sink any more time into this. And sorry, you know, gone. I'm uh, sorry, I was seriously con- considering you as a game I might purchase. And now, you know, that, that customer experience is just not worth it. Clearly, for whatever reason, you know, there's been some kind of big mess up here. <laughs> it sounds a bit worse than what he had, although I will say, specifically about the Horizon Zero Dawn question, I mean, I have to point out that the PS4 was GCN 1.0 based, and even the PS4 Pro is really Polaris Vega based. But that's still that's still GCN. I mean, when you're saying it works really badly on RDNA, especially Navi 21, I mean, yeah. No, I mean, guys, RDNA is an entirely new architecture. All Gorilla's really done is pretty much programmed to one piece of hardware for years. And I think they even put out a release saying that they screwed up, you know? So I have to say that a lot of these newer bugs are clearly due to that, that they were just so used to programming to one to one piece of hardware. And like I said, and I think like you agreed, that there is actually more smoke and mirrors in the background for games that were designed specifically for one piece of hardware than you might expect. That none of these things like the pillar box and cutscenes is they just didn't think to add something else. And actually, there's a lot of PC games still that for some reason don't support 21 by 9. And that's because there's something in the engine that doesn't like it. It's not because they didn't think to do it correctly, right? Yeah, so, somewhere in the hardware, uh, software stack. Um, it could be DirectX. It could be drivers that sit on top of DirectX. It could be the game engine. could be uh, who knows what. Notionally, you sometimes have GPUs that are backwards compatible, but I don't think mm-hmm. they're under nearly the same pressure in terms of backwards compatibility as, say, server hardware. Server hardware, when you say you're backwards mm-hmm. compatible, you're backwards compatible and no ifs, no buts. And yeah, you just can't afford. I mean, sure, if it's a bug, you can get rid of. That's one thing. But if it's you know, if it's an actual feature, you it should just you know, the same binary should work. I don't know if that was their problem, but um, you know, so could have been something weird like that. But I didn't even if it was 
officially backwards compatible or not. Is the RDNA hardware? I mean, I believe there's some degree of backwards compatibility in there. Yeah, RDNA one was built to be, for the most part, backwards compatible with GCN code. But I believe RDNA two. I'm sure there's still right some backwards compatibility built into it, but I think there's a lot less. Right. And so it requires much more work to make sure older things run on it well. I mean, I, you're seeing the same thing with Ampere, where I believe Crisis runs like absolute garbage on the new Ampere graphics cards. And, and that's because it wasn't, you know, that game was designed with something just decades old in hardware performance. Well, it's a de- yeah, over a decade old, right? So, like, there's some of that there too. Actually, I, I kind of want to pivot to a new. Uh, another reader mail here. So David Cowden writes in and says, what's your take on what happened with Halo Infinite and to an extent, Cyberpunk 2077? It almost seems like games attempting to be cross-generation look worse than either a polished last-gen game even or what we expect a true next-gen game to look like, like, you know, with an Unreal Engine 5 demo. Are these products, des- are the these product desires to build generation bridging games more than the industry can chew? Actually, I really like how he ended that question too, because I've got, I've had a real bone to pick with this idea that you can just have, you know, everything run on Xbox One and then Xbox One X and then Xbox Series X and Xbox Series X. I mean, you can make a game that runs on all of them, but I'm telling you what, if you mandate that games somehow work on this hard drive, GCN one, 1.7 gigahertz or whatever it is based console from 2013, you will not be making good use of the next gen console that's just light years ahead, right? There's certainly a you know jack of all trades, master of none aspect to it. And you're spreading your development team thin potentially. You know, if you're sort of under-resourced in general and you're giving each development team not enough resources, and you're trying to develop the game at the same time, I think you're more likely to hit issues compared to if you did. It's hard to say, really. It might be, in some ways, easier to do one uh, system first and then try and port that. But on the other hand, you have, you'd have you probably have different sorts of issues in terms of optimization, because if you go for your strongest system first, then you go, oh, this totally doesn't work mm. on this older stuff. But if you put, if you, if which you, I think is the right thing to do, right? Uh, if you were to ask me, I'd say program for the Xbox Series X and then just try your best to shrink it down to the last gen because we're in a new generation. I hope you're prioritizing for the future. But then you look at Cyberpunk and then turn out well. Yeah. I mean, we were talking earlier about the economics of you know games, you know making games, and the more platforms you can target, the, in theory, the better return on investment you get. So, totally understand why they want to target as many platforms as possible, and if they can do it well, you know, potentially they have better resources available to spend on everything. But you got to do it right, and you can't do it on chump change. And you know, to, to reverse what we we're saying earlier, if you if you target initially older generation, it's much harder to then uh, bring it up to, say, the quality you would expect for the newer generation, particularly with something like ray tracing, actually. That's, I think, catching a lot of developers Mm -hmm. with unexpected uh, performance and quality considerations. Something like ray tracing and the performance optimizations you have to consider for it, it actually makes, there's some things that you wouldn't expect make a big difference to performance, like how your textures work. And 
So if you have a very flat texture, as in, you know, you don't have a, like you literally have a mirror finish and a flat mirror, that's a lot easier than a bumpy mirror. It's the the maths Mm. are simpler. Oh, yeah. And things like that. And so if you wanted to, because of where we are in terms of hardware optimization on ray tracing, uh, there's just, you have to design the scenes, your your levels, your your characters, everything from the ground up, really, to get decent performance, I would say. And that's the sort of thing that's hard to just slap on at the last minute. You've already designed your textures and everything, and you've mm. probably even signed them off. You know, before you know, your artists are already working on some other project. You know, depending on where you are. So you, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't expect to see decent performance with ray tracing unless it was designed for that from the start. Uh, but then you're going to have, well, okay, we can do ray tracing here, but that means we have to have poorer quality textures, or we can't have the richness of textures that we wanted. So then you might have, want decide to go, okay, we'll design this room to look good with ray tracing, and we'll have this other room where there's basically no ray tracing we can have the nice textures and try and maybe do a bit of a hybrid there. Well, right. And that's interesting because, you know, Jensen Wang walked on stage and he was just like, well, ray tracing, it just works. It's just easier to program. But in effect, what you're really seeing this generation and for the past few years is it doesn't just work because it's so taxing on hardware. They're having to just do more work doing little optimizations in every single room to make sure it runs well. With ray tracing. So really, ray tracing hasn't made things any easier for developers right now. Maybe it will, right? In my opinion, in five years. But right now, it's really just added more work on top of the rasterization work they still already have to optimize a ton. There is actually one caveat to that, and that's dynamic shadows. Mm -hmm. Apparently, dynamic shadows in the right circumstances with hardware hardware ray tracing, dynamic shadows can apparently be faster. Yes. And better quality. I think the new Call of Duty uses that. And there's a couple other games that might use that too. That there are some developers right now at the start of this generation that are deciding to not use a lot of ray tracing, but use that for dynamic shadows. And that I've actually heard a lot of people say they look incredibly good. Yeah. So you, when, you, when you're going from pure software to your hardware supported, you can get a boat and you're effectively doing the real calculation then still it being a, a quick approximation because you're doing it in software. It's a true uh, calculation uh, with hardware optimization. And yeah, so you could actually get performance enhancements in those very specific areas. But from my understanding, that pretty much only applies if you have, well, basically outside. Um, so open world, you, you're pretty much your only light source is the sun. And even then, it doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might also depend on the game engine as well. But So that's, as far as I'm aware, the only low-hanging fruit. Uh, um, so that thing, one thing might get taken up, but the rest mm, might take uh, considerable planning. Not just optimization work, but planning. You know, the, you know, working with your graphic artists and saying, well, okay, you have to do it this way, otherwise performance will be short. Mm-hmm. 
When you can kind of see why shadows would be so appealing too, because they look obviously better if they're more accurate and high resolution. But like if you look at watchdogs on console, especially on the Series S, they said that it made the game look worse because the only way to fit it on the weaker version of the Xbox ray tracing, that is, is to turn the ray traced reflections resolution down so much that they said it just makes everything on that's ray trace look blurry. And so it doesn't it looks horrible anyways. Whereas if you're ray tracing a shadow, it's just black. You don't need to worry as much, you know what I mean, about accurately reflecting things in the you know in, in accurately tracing the reflections. It just needs to trace a black outline correctly and then you're good to go. So I think I think yeah that that's going to be much 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 more appealing for a lot of games over the next couple of years is to just use the ray tracing tech for good shadows. <laughs> well, hey, all, all, all that marketing, all that you know, engineering work, we got better <laughs> shadows. Yes. I think we'll have to wait and see. I mean, you know, if we take, so, uh, if we take Spider-Man on PS5, you know, why, why mm-hmm. is that seems to be standing out? And I think some of it is simply because it's open world. And some of it is simply because a lot of the objects like skyscrapers mm. are just flat objects, and that makes the maths easier. Yeah, and absolutely, yeah. And they, but they also, so in some ways, they were just lucky that <laughs> you know. Perhaps, well, I don't know if it, luck is the right word. There's skyscrapers and windows and watchdogs, but yeah. yet there's way, way, way more windows showing reflections in Spider-Man to a longer distance than watchdogs. Any version of watchdogs, even on PC, you know. Like, and I think you actually messaged me about this before we recorded that you were looking for examples of good ray tracing. I think you basically said Spider-Man seems to be the only one that made the correct trade-offs. And and, and to be honest, I'm hearing, I haven't played Spider-Man, so I can't say for sure, but I've seen videos of it, right? Um, But I'm hearing a lot of other people say that too. And the reason I think people say that is ray tracing never really impresses anyone unless it's running above 1080p so you can see the extra details and at 60 frames so it doesn't suck to play. Right, because I don't think anyone or most people with a brain are impressed by ray tracing unless it doesn't affect their gameplay. And if you're below 60 hertz, it affects your gameplay. And if you're not above 1080p, the extra detail in the textures and the ray trace reflections isn't noticeable, right? You might as well not turn on ray tracing below 1080p pretty much because the ray trace reflections are usually at a lower resolution. And it's just going to look like a blurry mess in every puddle. Yeah, and people, yeah, gamers don't play still screens. They play dynamic stuff. And it's, you know, the quality from frame to frame, if you've got flickering, if you've got weird stuff, that doesn't show up in individual frames. That can even be more jarring. So motion, it yes. just really pops out and in I've your noticed eye. this testing DLSS. If you, have, if you have something like flickering, that can really, really stand out to your eye very strongly. And... Mm-hmm. That can just kill it for you know, just to kill the fun for you. And you know, most people, I, most gamers, I would imagine, when they're you know, when you're in the moment, when you're concentrating on the game, you're concentrating on the game. You're not concentrating on the quality so much. So mm. you might, if you might initially play with ray tracing on for fun, but if it's if it, the smoothness isn't there, if there's annoying graphical artifacts, you'll just turn it off. Uh, so, you know, is it worth it? For feels like for most games right now, it isn't. And there's quite a lot of pessimism I'm seeing online about ray tracing. 
And I think it's well-founded. And it's just the pretty mm-hmm. much, if we consider, uh, say, mainstream games, or, uh, there's not, Spider-Man seems to be about the only one where people seem happy with it. It seems to be, you know, genuine improvement and, and worth the time. Well, right. I think it perfectly illustrates, right, Again, kind of like what I was saying, there's no point in turning it on unless it's obviously noticeable and it doesn't ruin both your resolution and frame rate or really one or the other. Again, I don't think people need 4K, but I do think people want above 1080p on the latest hardware. They do. They want it to be above 1080p and they want it to be locked at 60 frames. And I think Spider-Man will demonstrate to developers that you guys got to stop either getting lazy and just flipping it on and then turning down the frame rate or something like they did with watchdogs, or you've got to just make it only turn on for certain objects. Like just turn it on for mirrors and glass in a city, turn it off for everything else. Cause it kind of looks worse. And, 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 you know, I'll test it more once I get the 6,800 XT and the and a ampere card that's coming right now. But at least what I've tested so far with Turing cards, I just got to say, it looks like hot garbage to me when I was running around in Battlefield 5, even at higher settings, because even when I got it to run at a decent frame rate, because all of the reflections had like weird, not all of them, but sometimes, right? They would have this weird shimmer in the puddles that was really distracting and unrealistic. And, or they would, in some reflections, it was crazy low resolution compared to the resolution I was playing at. And I, again, I, I really thought it looked terrible. Like it, it made me come to the conclusion of like, well, maybe we can get to a point where we can run low levels of ray tracing and like that'll at least be nice on higher end hardware. But from what I've experienced, when developers talk about low levels of ray tracing, they just mean turning down the resolution in the puddles, and it just makes the puddles look like an N64 game, <laughs> or really a PlayStation 1 game, like, which looks much worse than N64. Like, so like, it, it looked absolutely terrible. And, and when I say low levels of ray tracing, I'm hoping that they just turn on high-resolution ray tracing on a couple of objects, because that's the only thing that works. The second the ray tracing resolution is below 1080p. It just makes the texture on the ground look terrible. It looks like a muddy mess. Again, look at the Xbox Series S version of Watch Dogs to know exactly what I'm talking about. Or really just try to play Battlefield 5 with ray tracing on on almost any graphics card. Then you'll also know what I'm talking about. Yeah, so developers are definitely going to have to be selective about where they turn it on and off. And what kind of fallbacks they have. If they, if you have a, shall we say, traditional solution that works well, and there's almost no scenario in which the hardware-based ray tracing actually gives you either quality improvement or performance improvement, then just ignore it. Focus your efforts elsewhere. But I think the the software side is still playing catch-up to a very large degree. Uh, I mean, game engines mm-hmm. didn't have ray tracing hardware support for ray tracing immediately. It, they're still, mm-hmm. I would say the game engines are still in early phases of supporting yeah, it. they and definitely supporting are it, when you look at the performance of most of them. And also having it work reliably, cleanly, have good fallbacks for when you, know, you don't have hardware support, things like that. I mean, perhaps, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see where, say, Unreal Engine 5 gets to. It feels like they, the early work they've done in previous releases, like the last year or so, have been 
like the low hanging fruit and more what they could do mm-hmm. quickly. Whereas Unreal Engine 5 might be much more baked in at a deep level. So that might give new opportunities. We'll see what other game engines can provide and developers can provide. So yeah, I think you just have to, it's a new paradigm for the software, for the graphics artists, for the game engines, for drivers. And it's going to take a while to optimize that stack. NVIDIA have been out with it for two years. Game engine support, less than that. Um, you know, the games that have come out, mostly they've probably done it at the last minute because if you mm, if, if, a ga- if, a ga- if a game's <laughs> just come out and you add it mm-hmm. um, and it has ray tracing support, it was almost certainly done at the last minute. Games that have had ray tracing, mm-hmm. ray tracing designed from scratch, you know, right from the very beginning, the conception of the game, you know, those are only just starting now. They're not what's coming off the line now. It's what's starting now, is, is I would say. You know, that's actually what I heard from developers from Bluepoint Games. They said that they had considered putting ray tracing in Demon Souls, but if they did it, they wanted to do it right, and that would require just from the ground up engine. They didn't want to tack it on because they thought their pre-baked lighting already looked pretty damn good. So they just made the decision to not put that in a game in 2020 because it they knew they suggested it requires from the ground up programming to do well which actually you're starting to get into a pivot into another thing i want to discuss gosh reesey why does windows 10 professional have to be so expensive Don't listen to that, nerd. Listen to me. You can get all the great windows and gaming keys you need at CDK Offers. I have a plan. Go to cdkoffers.com to get all the Windows Professional and Microsoft Office keys you need, and games as well. Add them to your cart, and you can even apply one of them city slicker promotional codes like Dashrink for 3% off software and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. I do have an account on this website, and it is ultra easy to use. Just submit your order, use PayPal, credit card, or Bitcoin, and go to Windows website to download Microsoft Professional. One more time, that's go to cdkoffers.com. They're a fantastic sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead. Use offer code DOSHRINK for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows products. Now, back to the show. So, I guess... Oh, let's start with this one. So Deco writes in and says, does AMD's implementation of ray tracing cores, that is their version, their design and RDNA 2 scales ray tracing on a per CU basis instead of a more monolithic approach that NVIDIA uses with tensor cores by segmenting a second area on the die for RT. What does that mean for future generations of RDNA performance versus NVIDIA? Do you think AMD will age better over time into RDNA 3 with this approach? Or will NVIDIA always have a ray tracing advantage with how they're handling ray tracing hardware? Uh, I don't think there's actually, at a very high level, I, th- I think there's maybe a bit of a misunderstanding or I'm misunderstanding. 
I, um, so the way NVIDIA are doing their RT calls, they can scale it up with their architecture. It's not a, you know, they're, they're doing it uh, at per block in quite a similar way to AMD, I would say, at a, at a very high level. Very high level. Not low mm-hmm. level. The level would be, could be very, very different, but a very high level, you know, um, they scaled up the number of RT calls from Turing to Ampere. They can just carry on doing that. Mm-hmm. Why not? AMD can do the same. So I don't think there's a obvious bottleneck in that regard. In terms of how just AMD will, you know, ray trace this by AMD, well, yeah, to, to, to follow up the previous point, they've only just started. So the drivers have mm-hmm. only just started. Game engine support for it has only just started. Although some of the theory has been there and some of the... Uh, shall we say the, the the game speculation? Maybe. Well, if if you think, say say conceptually, the although that they're both hardware ray tracing based ray tracing support, that yeah, the actual implementation is different, and what works will be different. So, if you take something that mm-hmm. was well optimized for NVIDIA, that's not necessarily going to be automatically well optimized for AMD. Mm-hmm. Navi, we should maybe say. Or RDNA, RDNA. That will take time. Uh, but if you go from a game which has at least some ray tracing already, they've probably gone through some, uh, at least a first pass optimization in terms of things like light sources, textures, uh, room design, you know, what sort of ray tracing features they actually want to turn on and where. Um, so they've probably gone through that a little bit. So pro- it might. I wouldn't be. Uh, I think it would be reasonable to expect that the first, the very first generation. So we're talking about you know next six months of uh, mm-hmm. games with support, uh, ray tracing support on RDNA, are perhaps a little bit better than the first six months on Nvidia. Uh, because I think that's safe to yeah, say. Because <laughs> if you look at the results of like at least even just literally Spider Man, like the first six months of Turing, there were no games to play. There were none. There wasn't even one yeah. ray tracing game at launch with Turing. You could argue that's because it was such a small install base, but it really didn't start working well on Turing until they optimized it. I think a, over a year after yeah. the RTX 2000 series came out, that's when you really got the big updates to Battlefield Five and stuff, where finally there were somewhat playable frame rates. And also pretty when you started having game engine support as well. Um, there, mm-hmm. there certainly wasn't game engine support out of the gate. I don't know if I don't know if Nvidia dropped the ball on trying to prepare for that, or simply that it was just very expensive for you know the game engine guys to do it because they probably had their own plans. And then you know if Nvidia comes along and mm-hmm. says we want this, well then yeah. they've got to allocate new resources to support it. So that, you know that's. Easier said than done, particularly as when you said, as you said, it's a small install base. Uh, you know, the high-end cars get a lot of press and a lot of discussion, but they're as an install base, they're tiny. So, you know, the money is volume. It's not you, you don't selling a game to a guy with a high-end graphics card gives you the same money to selling it to a guy with a low-end graphics card. So you have to support the mm-hmm. mass market where you can. And obviously you want to try and make it scale. So that it looks better on the high end, because you know that's what you can use to then sell the game. It's not that they have no motivation; it's just limited, uh, because the, the payoff is limited. 
Right. And I think what I would default to, which is what I believe I said in my 6800 XT kind of review day impressions video, is that at the end of the day, NVIDIA seems to generally have better ray tracing performance right now. Card to card, like if you, like when I say card to card, I mean comparing, for example, 3080 to 6800 XT or 3072. I don't really know if that's fair to compare the 6800, but like uh, almost, you know, I guess maybe we'll say 3060 Ti to 6700 XT when that comes out. Um, you know, NVIDIA seems to, for the same rasterization performance, have better ray tracing performance than their AMD counterparts right now. But at the same time, time when you look at like call of duty cold war on the consoles with ray trace shadows or spider-man on the ps5 that type of impressive ray traced you know uh, effects did not exist with anything nvidia for years and arguably doesn't now right Mm. (laughs) like so i think my opinion really is still To say Ampere will always have better ray tracing performance than RDNA 2 is premature because there's actually a mountain of evidence to the contrary. I wouldn't bet money AMD will have RDNA 2 age like fine wine, as they say, and outperform Ampere ray tracing quickly. But you certainly shouldn't rule that out. And you can say, oh, it's just because Spider-Man's ray tracing off of a bunch of you know, flat surfaces on buildings and rate. And I've actually heard, by the way, from sources that RDNA 2 is specifically very good at running the, a lot of the same type of ray tracing on flat surfaces. Um, but you know what? It still is more impressive. I don't really care what it's good at if one of them is producing effects that are more impressive than the other one. So I, I, I just do think it's premature to say Ampere is better right now long-term. It might be, but I'm not so sure. And what happens when AMD launches in an over 300-watt RDNA 3 card, potentially, that is rumored to have double the compute units of RDNA 2? You know, NVIDIA is using 350 watts to have better ray tracing right now. What happens when AMD gets up to something that powerful? I don't know that I would bet, you know, <laughs> that NVIDIA will always have better ray tracing. Uh, yeah, certainly, uh, if we just think of pure software optimization, AMD you know, they're just starting. So I would at least expect the gap to close at a minimum. At a minimum, I would expect mm-hmm. the gap to close. Whether AMD overtakes on average, uh, who knows? We'll see. Um, there might be some very specific cases. So there de- there's different hardware that will have different special cases. So it's interesting to consider Spider-Man. Is it a, you know, ha- how specific is it to the environment they have? How specific is it to the amount of work that was put into it um mm-hmm. you know we might not see another game like that for another year or two sure which is why i'd yeah. say don't bet on amd winning yeah. either we just have to see right but you know actually let me let me pivot to this question here so connor hori writes in and says do you think ray tracing will cause this generation of graphics cards to age poorly overall currently there's a lot of debate about how relevant ray tracing will be in the future reviewers hammer home the point that nvidia cards can run x game at 40 frames per second with ray tracing while the equivalent amd cards are 20 but in both of these examples both cards look bad to me considering those frame rates are lower than i want for top tier cards if ray tracing becomes more relevant i would think this generation will actually possibly age very badly overall as they are essentially first gen or do you think it is possible ray tracing will be more efficiently implemented in a future way that keeps this gen 
relevant. And on a similar note, do you think ray tracing will accelerate the aging of older cards like the GTX 970 that doesn't officially have any ray tracing support at all? So to follow up on my what I was saying just now, in that you know high-end graphics cards are a tiny minority of the market, that's you know still the case. You know, if 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 you're a games developer and you're saying, well, how many people actually have ray hardware ray tracing support on the PC? It's going to be low percentages for a long time. Uh, yeah. So, if you're starting a game now, um, well, as actually as we said earlier, if, you know, you, to do ray tracing properly, you pretty much have to do it from the start. So, if you're starting now, you might say, okay, three to four years from now, where's the market going to be? Well, you probably have to assume quite a lot bigger install base than now for sure, much bigger. So you would have some value, but you're still going to have quite a few cards that don't have ray tracing support or are relatively weak. So I think it's going to depend on a lot of factors. So how many games developers are actually doing that? Are are they already planning to do it as like a default option almost in terms of mm-hmm. what 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 they choose to implement and not or are they going to leave it till later in the process or the development mm. process? So I think games plan to come out, for example, three years from now. So like Pragmata is a game or two to three years from now. So any game coming out 2023 or later, I think those games probably are planning with ray tracing from the ground up, right? But I, I think that any game over the next year, not any, some of them I'm sure put thought into it, but a lot of them will still have done it last minute. Yeah. I think for if you're if you if you're a manager, you know if you're trying to make the decision, if you're trying to call whether to go all in on ray tracing or not, now it's a difficult choice because how do you know how is it actually going to be a payoff? It's not going to work for all games. Mm-hmm. Open world games, say set in bright sunlight, you're going to get dynamic shadows. That's about it. Maybe some reflections of water. That's about it. You're mostly outside in bright sunlight, single point source. You're not actually going to get that much payoff from ray tracing. You know, you can maybe try. You know, you could maybe say, okay, let's have lots of indoor scenes, or let's have lots of cases where the character is walking through sunlit woods, and you have, you know, beams of sunlight coming through and things like that. But is that going to enhance the game? Is that actually going to increase sales? And so it's going to be game dependent for sure. It's going to be, you know, some. You might just say, okay, we're not going to take the risk. Let's actually stick to tried and trusted methods and we'll see if, and we'll wait and see on the next game. And that might be the entirely right bet if, you know, if the software side isn't up to it. Sorry. Um, well, I mean, the optimization. So you, ha- you would have to make a prediction on how far optimization is going to go three years from now, mm. for example. So if that, if, you know, if optimization gets you less than you expect, well, you might be a bit screwed, for example. But, well, it's also whether you're, I guess, whether you're targeting console predominantly or not. So if you're targeting console, you know you're going to have hardware ray tracing. Targeting PC, mm. you have, you're going to have to be a bit more careful because although the top-end cards might have sufficient capacity, the lower-end cards might not. Although, you know, it depends what 
uh, resolutions, you're predicting people are going to run out as well. So there's a big move to four. Because you'd, you'd want to assume most people, right, with a decent card are going to want at least 1440p performance. I think that's the minimum pretty soon. Imagine that 4K monitors completely, almost everyone buys 4K monitors from now on. And therefore, they want to run their games in 4K. That puts a very different pressure on your games. You're going to need that will tilt it more towards rasterization. Whereas if people, if average mm. gamers stay on low resolution monitors, then that will tilt that will make it easier to do um, higher quality, uh, effectively better quality pixels rather than more pixels. So that would make it easier to do ray traces. Uh, yeah. So yeah, you, you don't envy the people. The choices that people are making, because you're, you're you're trying to predict the future three to four years from now, and you only have so much control over it, right? And then you're also kind of predicting how much you'll be able to get out of optimizing, and sometimes yeah. you get more than you'd expect, yeah. and sometimes, again, I think a lot of this has to do with that earlier question of when one game looks better when they first show it off and then it looks worse in practice or the infamous Spider-Man one on PS4 just didn't have a puddle in one part of a game where they were like, ah, oh, there was a puddle. They removed it. See, they lied about how the game will look. I mean, I think some of that is fraud like in the case of Cyberpunk, but I think some of it is, hey, it turns out that it lowers frame rates by this much and you know, we didn't think we we didn't get as much out of it as we were expecting. But it, that actually dovetails us into another good reader mail here. So VI Pass writes in and he asks, what types of incentives do the hardware companies provide for companies or programmers to optimize specifically for their own hardware? On the same topic, how much optimization is really needed at the game engine level over just allowing the hardware drivers to do the optimizations of the API game engine? Yeah, <laughs> I almost have this image in my head of some, you know, some heavies uh, with black suits turning up with a suitcase full of money and dumping it on your manager's <laughs> desk. And I saying, think that's what some people think goes on, you know. Yeah, no, yeah. that's not. That's definitely not how it works. Actually, if we, if I reference uh, my what I was saying earlier about servers and you know, um, it, for when you bring out new hardware on the server side, you actually might get a discount for buying it new. It's a little similar for getting um, software support. So mm. there is a degree. So in the short term, as we were saying earlier, the install base is small. So you have you don't have much incentive to support it immediately. So I, I would expect this. If you're a hardware manufacturer, you want to encourage taker, but the the thing that will there's what you can try and push the companies, but the thing that will make them jump effectively is install base. And that's it, because that's mm-hmm. that's money to them. That's profit to them. So in the short term, well, obviously good documentation, uh, good examples, providing engineers to talk to. You know, they can, you know, if you if if you're a game developer and you can talk to you know, someone from NVIDIA, a proper engineer, not a marketing person, uh, who can actually say, this sort of thing will actually work. You know, this will, uh, you might need to make this in this consideration. That helps an awful lot because it, they don't have to do their own research. Because if it's something entirely new, particularly something which is practically a whole new paradigm from um, a software optimized, well, general optimization perspective, as like ray tracing. You need to do the research to figure out what works. You can't just mm-hmm. 
throw stuff at the wall. Uh, well, you, that's your research. Your, your, your research is throw stuff at the wall, see what works. And then you can maybe mm. start planning it. And if you're late in the process, if your game, you know, if your game is due to be released in six months or three months, you're not going to have very much scope to do that at all. And, you know, you've got your own stuff to do. You're trying to get the game out the door. You're, you're you know, you're in the crunch. You're, the last thing you want is a new feature. The very last thing you want is a new feature. Mm-hmm. So if there is any special stuff going on, it's probably more through the marketing department where they say, okay, we'll give you some help, you know, scratch our back, we'll, uh, you know, we'll scratch your sort of thing. Um, so they might help them indirectly through marketing because that's more acceptable way of making it worth your time. Because even if you did, so even if you're the hardware developer and you literally write the stuff for the game developer, that's still going to take resources away from the game developer. It's probably hard to kind of appreciate this, but I would say if you're a new software developer and you're just starting at a company, in most cases, I would say you're probably going to be a net negative on productivity for the first month. Mm. Because you're taking resources away from the other developers, you know the the the, foot, the early the early footsteps are very expensive, and then you start to get find your feet, and then you start becoming productive, and that takes time. Uh, the second point was on oh, how much uh, get, uh, optimization game engines need. I don't know the how far they really go, but I wouldn't be surprised mm. if game engines like say Unreal. They kind of almost take over to a degree. I wouldn't be surprised. So although they are, in a sense, based on, you know, if you're running on Windows, Unreal would be piggybacking on top of DirectX and to some degree the mm-hmm. drivers. But I suspect what they're actually doing is just using a, a very select percentage, small, the bits they need that are unique to the platform and are most, for the most part, bypassing bypassing, you know, DirectX and maybe even the drivers to some degree. Because, well, say you, you've got a new feature you want to do in your game engine and it doesn't have mm-hmm. DirectX support. Well, how are you going to implement that? Well, you're going to have to bypass DirectX. So, and that also means you're going to have to do your own um, optimization in the drivers. Which Unreal Engine 5 works on everything, right? It works on, they showed it on PS5, it works on Android and iPhones. It was designed to work on everything, yeah. right, that can run and games. that means you're going to have a software fallback for everything. So even if you, mm. can, even if you, you so say, so say a feature appears in DirectX before it appears in Unreal, in the short term, Unreal could say, okay, let's just piggyback off that and call it directly, and we'll only support it on this platform and only support it on this version mm. of DirectX. But in longer term, uh, they'll want to make it available everywhere, so they'll do their full implementation of it. And that will almost certainly entail doing, you know, going down to the GPU level, if necessary, depending mm-hmm. on what the driver does. It would depend you know, just what, what the things do and what level of flexibility that they have. So it's quite common for APIs to be pluggable to some extent, like you can just rip out a little bit and put your own thing in. But that doesn't mm-hmm. always work for optimization. So to get the maximum optimization out of the whole pipeline, you pretty much need to control the whole pipeline. So, mm-hmm. so for example, if you want to be able to 
efficiently load textures in the background, well, that requires a lot of back and forth communication between your drivers, you know, the GPU and the, uh, whatever's loading the textures. Because, for example, you would absolutely want to know, is this texture already being displayed? Because then you definitely can't remove it from your cache. It might be displayed, but in the far distance, so you only need it at a very small resolution. And so you, you actually have communication between the GPU saying, this is what I'm showing, and this is... Uh, and mm-hmm. telling the, dry, the games engine, the game engine, I'm showing this. This is actually on screen, and that's part of the optimization process. Well, yeah, and I think I think what you're kind of getting to as well is that it's not always huge, but sometimes it is. Yeah. Like that example of um, what was it, Horizon Zero Dawn, forest disappearing. Their Decima engine was built around GCN, and when new RDNA cards came out, forests were disappearing, <laughs> right? Like, I guarantee it had something to do with that right there, right? Like, that there was some trick they were doing that worked on GCN that they were optimizing that had problems on RDNA and even bigger problems on RDNA, too. You know, having... I, th- I mean, I mean, just think about it, everyone listening. I mean, what I mean, when you look at Vulkan, it tends to run way better on AMD, or at least it did for a while until NVIDIA basically put a bunch of extra stuff in there for them. Like building an engine around a specific architecture, like when you see them show it, and the first thing they showed on is this one device, that's a big deal that they designed it on that one device first, I think, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the more you spend time on one device, the more you're going to optimize it. So if you're a games developer and, you're, and you say your reference system is Intel running NVIDIA or... Uh, yep, Unreal Engine 4, by the way. That is what they based things re- on, pretty much. Really? Okay, so I would have expected them to have a bit more... Intel at the very least, yeah. At least I've been told that one reason you see Intel still randomly get pretty giant wins in some games is because a lot of game engines have been built around Intel processors for the most part for a very long time. A lot of PC yeah. game engines. And if, you do, if you're doing a lot of low-level optimization and, you, and you're benchmarking only one processor, then yeah, you can definitely go down that path. Mm-hmm. Zane Mukat, what is it, Mukat, writes in and says, what use cases will there be for PCIe 5.0 and 6.0 for both SSDs and graphics cards? Do you think developers will start to take advantage of them? Or do you think graphics cards will start to have only four lanes because they can't take advantage of all the bandwidth? Well, I think there's no chance of that. I mean, except for the low-end ones, right? Because, I mean, they do do that to save money on the low-end ones. So I, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if like some RDNA 3 cards only had four PCIe 5.0 lanes. Although that would really make them have performance problems, though, if you had a PCI 3.0 motherboard, and a lot of people do. So I, I, you know, I'd actually doubt that. But you know, Alder Lake will support PCIe 5.0. Like, like, what do you think the use cases will be for 5.0, 6.0 SSDs and graphics cards? On the SSD side, uh, the pure bandwidth improvement doesn't seem particularly useful right now. I think you probably mm-hmm. want to focus more on, rather than peak bandwidth, you want to focus more on average bandwidth or in particular latency um, and general efficiency rather than just raw bandwidth. And to some degree, brute forcing stuff can help, but there's other things. So, you know, I th- I th- something that's come up, you know, on the PS5, they talked about. Um, having this thing on the GPU that clears out caches on loading stuff. 
Yeah, and there's a cash scrubber yeah. and a couple other things as well. Yeah, and that's basically something you have to do when you're doing DMA. And your, your, your modern CPU will have efficient support for DMA because that's been around a long time. But that's starting to be added to G- GPUs now, and they're starting to need better optimization for that. So in some ways, you know, AMD could almost go copy-paste from the X6 to the GPU in terms of, you know, the cache optimization, mm. or, sorry, cache support for that. But it's a little bit more complicated than that because, you know, th- that extra feature has an extra cost. So you're kind of like trying to do it at the last minute. I actually looked through the uh, RDNA 2 instruction set and I mm. noticed they had things for clearing the whole cache, but not, I couldn't see anything for very selective cache clearing. So that does seem to be PS5 specific. Well, and I would remind everybody, even though some people make fun of me, I'm telling everyone listening, I've spoken, I have multiple sources saying the PS5 has features that won't be implemented on desktop till RDNA 3. I'm not kidding when I say that. And so now you've looked at this and you seem to see something above that as well. It's not a joke. There's something in, there's some things in the PS5 that aren't on desktop RDNA 2, nor the Series X's architecture. And that specific example, they might just copy it from the PS5 or like what I said earlier, actually copy it from their own XX6 scores because they would have that mm-hmm. support already. And the, re- the reason why you need to clear the cache is if you've tra- sneakily transferred in the background some, something to main memory and you have a copy of the old data in cache that's now stale. So you need to clear it from the cache if it is in the cache. And, the, and if you don't know if mm-hmm. it is in the cache, the only thing you can safely do is to clear the cache or accept the fact that you're going to have graphics glitches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, I'm not, I'm not going to promise which way AMD are going to implement it in the yeah. RDNA 3, but one of, the, one of those two would be very likely. And you can, you know, NVIDIA are doing similar things, I would imagine. Well, let, let's let's move on with this to some of the kind of the final things I want to talk about because we've been going on for a while here. I, I kind of want to transition into future hardware discussions. So I suppose we already are with me bringing up PCIe 5.0, but let me let me bring up this reader mail here. So Tob Mock writes in and says, because of the very slow start of populating the market with RTX 3000 series, does it mean that the launch of the RTX 4000 series will likely be postponed by a year extra into the future? Hmm. I would say, I don't know that that necessarily suggests that, but how would you answer that question? Pretty much the same. The projects are to some degree independent. So there's there's overlap in the development cycle. So, you know, the successor to Ampere started development well before Ampere even taped out, probably most likely, or at least the early development stages of it. So they would have had a reasonable target frame for it. And things like production is very different to design. So design is effectively as Ampere finished the design phase, all those engineers would probably shift to the next gen project. Although, so you probably have like for the next gen, you would have, you'd start with a small team. They would scope it out, decide, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the top level objectives, top level um, architecture. And then as, develop, as your engineers come off the previous project, you allocate them to work on the new project. And that's just, in, that's just development. That's nothing, that's completely separate to production. And there's very few companies who would ever go, oh, we can wait a bit longer. 
on releasing a product. <laughs> I mean, imagine this. Yeah. Imagine the following scenario. Ampere got delayed three to four months or in terms of when it was released. Uh, or at least one mm. way or another, RDNA 2 came out first, was reviewed first. Imagine that actually happened. How big of an impact mm. would that have had on perceptions on the cards, at least in the short term? Uh, quite a bit, because now you're comparing, oh, now NVIDIA's... Because it wouldn't be AMD's answer to Ampere. They would be reviewing NVIDIA cards as an answer to AMD. Yeah. right? It would be seen as a reaction. Yeah, the, the, the initial benchmarking would have been Big Navi versus Turing. Mm-hmm. That would have been so yeah. different. <laughs> and that's just a few months. So companies... And that's what happened with GCN versus Kepler for those listening. In 2011, Kepler was delayed due to very bad yields with their complex architecture. And so AMD pushed up the 7970 launch. It was just a paper launch, but they paper launched it, I believe, like a week before Christmas. But it allowed them to compare AMD's next generation card to NVIDIA's 40 nanometer old cards that looked just crazy weaker at the time. And I believe the 7970 was incredibly unoptimized right when it first launched as well. I think it gained like 30-40% performance through driver updates over the next year. Like that's how unoptimized and unready it was. But they did it because they were able to compare it to NVIDIA's previous gen. And uh, it looked really good because of that. Like really good. Yeah. So to come back to the original question, that um, NVIDIA have very little incentive to walk it slowly. Yes, and the more they're worried about AMD, the, the you know the more they might even start trying to pull it in early. I wouldn't be surprised if they're working on hard on that. So you know, it might be a bit of crunch time at Nvidia. <laughs> I wouldn't. I I couldn't agree more. I, I actually would think that they might pull it up because of the. And again, I want to be very clear about what's going on here. The numbers that are that I've seen for shipments that, and they continue. Like, just wait for the official numbers to come out, people. Like. I know it's hard to get these cards, but NVIDIA's shipped total now, I believe, at least half a million Ampere cards, people. Now, that's not nearly enough to satisfy demand. They need tens of millions, even in a normal generation in the past. That's how many are sold to desktop. And they sent about half of those to miners directly, so that's part of the problem. But additionally, AMD's shipped about 150,000 cards by now, more than they shipped in Vega in 2017. These companies are shipping cards. They're just hard to get. And because they're so hard to get, NVIDIA is actually considering not even launching the 3080 Ti or the 3070 Ti. And I wouldn't if I were them. To be honest, to to kind of go back to what we were saying about moving up, if I was NVIDIA, I would be looking at the future and go, we got miners buying our cards. We can't keep them in stock for gamers. If anything, I would just launch the 3060 and the 3050 and then that's all I would launch from Ampere. You know, you have the 3090, 80, 70, 60, 50. And if you can see where I'm going with this, I wouldn't launch any other cards, any other high VRAM models. I would just launch those five cards and then move up an Ampere refresh with more VRAM and call it the RTX 4000 series at the end of 2021, yeah, at the end of this year. Like, if anything, I think there's more incentive for them to do a sooner launch because they're probably not going to be able to keep up with demand all year. So they might as well just fix not launch any new products to fill out the Ampere lineup and just do an entire refresh with the new generation that's, you know, maybe only 30% better, but who cares, you know, at the end of this year. Th- that's what I think. That would certainly be one option. And if if perhaps 
if NVIDIA's original plans was to have a two-year gap, they might suddenly go, uh, we need something to go in the middle. Or they, actually, they probably always had a the option. So they might have had a speculative project right. that they would go, okay, we'll do this project, and if we need it, we'll continue it, and otherwise we'll can it. Um, so, you know, a quick port to um, Samsung's 5 nanometer, for example, would be, you know, so mm-hmm. they would they would probably have a small team doing that and they might go, okay, we definitely need this full steam ahead. Or they might go, actually, we don't need it. Let's can it. And that would depend on the market situation. And so that's one way you can play it if you're unsure what to do. So, I mean, you know, in the semiconductor business, you have to plan three to four years ahead. So you need these little... Yep. Um, effectively alternative projects that often don't see the light of day. Um, and Right, and like people are talking about how like Lovelace may come before Hopper or vice versa. It's like, well, all of these things, right, are things they're planning right now. They're not going to just delay Hopper or or make Lovelace replace it because of like, like, like whatever is coming was planned four years ahead of time, right? Yeah, and the, and the clip... I don't think they're just going to delay yeah. any of these. That they may reprioritize things, so you can definitely do that. Right, you can shift engineers could between do that. projects. That's that's something you can definitely do. Um, uh, but they also, you know, they are definitely going to be to some degree limited by what Samsung can provide them with. So, right, because you mentioned Samsung five nanometer. Uh, from what I'm hearing from people in the fab business, don't expect anything high performance on Samsung's five nanometer for years. Well, to put it very simply, at the best case, um, if we if we say that Samsung are struggling quite a bit with the current chips at an eight nanometer, well, it's going to be mm-hmm. eighteen to twenty four months before they're at the same level of readiness for five nanometer. It could be longer. Mm-hmm. Depend, you know, depends on how things go. So. Uh, it would probably be easier for NVIDIA to uh, start with something smaller. Um, or should we say safer, more yeah. predictable. Like they know if they launch a more mature 8 nanometer generation that's better optimized with different VRAM amounts, maybe with like better yields that they can get maybe another 20% performance if they use the full die out of GA102. There's a real incentive to just plan on releasing that at the end of 2021 and say, hey, we doubled the VRAM and it's 20% better. And we know it's going to come out on time. Because, because uh, well, RDNA 3, I know, sounds very impressive. I do know that there's some real debates going on inside AMD right now, just so everyone knows about still what node it should use and if they'll have any capacity to make it. <laughs> right. So if I was NVIDIA, I would just bet on having something 20% better that we know we can launch on time. Yeah. So, yeah, if you're an NVIDIA, you might say, okay, rather than going for maximum performance, let's target good yields, good availability, get something that's a step ahead of where AMD is now, put some clear water between us. Mm-hmm. And then we can, that will give us some breathing room. We can then spend more time breathing on room. You know, the, the real upgrade. AMD, hmm. Yeah, it's, it, I, I feel they're kind of really suffering from capacity constraints. I'm not. Sh- oh yeah, and <laughs> I will be talking about it in upcoming videos if I ever get the time to finish some of them. And here's an interesting thought: uh, it, if they're if they're suffering to a really strong degree, one thing they could do is just split off the I/O and get it manufactured by someone else, like they're doing on their X6 chiplets. So if you 
So on Big Navi, the you know all all those um, GDDR6 controllers take up quite a bit of space. If you replace that by say a quick Infinity Fabric connection, it could be a lot smaller. You might be able mm-hmm. to save yourself 100 square millimeters of die space, and then you can make more chips per wafer from TSMC. And as long as you've got some other company like Global Foundries to do your I.O. chip, well, that will give you more capacity. But you would have a hit in other areas. Like it would have a it would improve it would increase power consumption. It would it would actually hurt performance very slightly, but it would give you more capacity. So yeah, there's some weird things when you consider the economics of the situation and supply constraints. Well, that's something you talked about too in an article I know you're writing maybe for the website is that NVIDIA has this war chest of money to do all of these designs for all of these dies. Whether you like it or not, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's tens of millions of dollars per die design. Like it's a, it is a lot of money, right? I don't remember. I think it was up to like $100 million easily now is what I've been told from the last guest I had. Oh, yeah. And with that in mind, you know, NVIDIA easily has the money to just, I mean, look at... Pascal, Turing, like how many different dies were there? It's like 10 different dies based on the same architecture. Whereas AMD, when they were not that cash, uh, cash rich, uh, C-A-S-H, not C-A-C-H-E, <laughs> cash, <laughs> it's a very bad joke for some fans. Uh, when AMD wasn't very cash rich, um, they just had Polaris and Vega. They had two dies, like, and I guess there were a couple Polaris dies, but like they had way less. And so it would make a lot of sense to just design maybe one 80 CU die that on five, or perhaps I'm hearing six nanometer, that just takes up a little less room. And because you you remove the IO, maybe one six or five nanometer die, I don't know, that's like 300 millimeter squared. And then you can just boom, boom, put two of those or three of those next to one IO die that's made at TSMC, I mean, not at TSMC, but at um, Global Foundries or something, because they've got to do something to split up capacity, and they don't have a lot of design uh, money for tons of design, designing tons of dies. So if they could just have one ADCU die that they cut down and mix and match, that would actually be really advantageous for a company like them. Yeah, I mean, economics of, economies of scale are a very real thing, and AMD is still the little fish in many in many respects. They they have big success in some areas, but in terms of absolute volume, they're still quite small. And the better volume you, the higher volume you have, the easier you can support more chips that are specialized, uh, because you you can effectively recover your fixed, your very heavy fixed costs across more chips. And that's the position. That's the advantage Nvidia has. I mean, if we if we consider a, a kind of very theoretical scenario where NVIDIA just had graphics and AMD just had graphics and they had exact same quality pr- products, you know, across the board, NVIDIA would have, because they had the bigger market share, um, they would have the better economies of scale. They would be able to, you know, uh, mess with AMD by going into a price war and AMD wouldn't yeah, it's in this scenario, AMD would struggle to survive, mm-hmm. and but you know it, that's going to be a lot harder for Nvidia because AMD is making money on X86 as well. So, 
<laughs> yeah, AMD can afford, right, to not make as much money on their on this product because it's not their main product. Their main product's actually Zen, and they're making plenty of money off of that. Although, they're making a lot of money off of RDNA 2 as well, at least right now. Well, the AMD's average gross margins are like 50%. But the, now they are. They didn't used to be, by the way. <laughs> um, their net margins. Uh, so once you consider all the development costs, instead of you go from 50% gross margins to 10% net. Well, that's that's mm-hmm. that's a healthy profit margin. But mm-hmm. ooh, uh, you know, they still got I'm if they're struggling to increase volume, so well, basically the number of wafers they can get produced, it makes it harder for them to grow. And it's mm-hmm. it's all very well having better products, but if you can't sell enough, that actually doesn't give you much benefit. So you No, it, it really doesn't. You could say that the economics alone would drive AMD to try and split things off a bit. They really have to, right? They, they have to. And, and, and I'm going to just, I got, and you know, I would just make everyone take note of something. When you look at the roadmaps for Zen, they show five nanometer for Zen 4 pretty confidently. And then you look at RDNA 3 and they just says advanced node. That is because Zen comes first, as I'm going to explain in some videos in that AMD is prioritizing Zen for sure over RDNA on who gets the best node. And also just because there's this consideration of do we really want them both, you know, fighting for the same wafers? Yeah. I and mean, you have to wonder, would AMD actually be better off in just paying more and getting more wafers? Or would they be better off trying to keep their existing prices? Um yeah, it's, it, that's that's the truth. People keep saying, you know, well, it's too expensive. It's like, well, they keep flying off the shelves, guys. So it's it's literally not too expensive because people keep buying. Right. Well, you know, should AMD pay TSMC more for more capacity? Right now, it makes sense. But if you you know if you start producing start a new wafer, you know, if AMD go to today and tell TSMC double you know double the number of wafers, that doesn't actually come off the line. Uh, for like three months. It doesn't start to go to consumers for four months from there. So the, you have mm. to have you have to be looking that far ahead. So right now it might be and Sony's bidding for and Microsoft are bidding yeah. with AMD for their consoles as well. And the thing with these consoles is they know each one's gonna sell. And they know people will keep buying the same console for five years, unlike these graphics cards where if they overproduce them, well, we made too many, right? Yeah. And you, you have to be careful because, well, I, I, I don't think AMD is going to have this problem, but other chip companies might, they might order too much and assume current demand will sustain. But if you're having a big upgrade rush now, it almost certainly means a year from now, you might get the opposite, or at least you would think so, because right. who's going to be, if you upgraded a year ago, are you going to upgrade again? Really? I mean, some, some people will, but most of people won't. Mm-hmm. So, the, uh, so yeah, if you solve the capacity problem for the next generation and then make a ton of them, maybe you'll make a ton less money because a lot of people just fought to upgrade this gen, right? Yeah. You could you, know, you could run out of cash very easily if you don't think ahead. I mean, uh, yeah, but like I said, I don't think AMD is going to have that problem. But yeah, other companies might for sure might do. I mean, if you're in the memory business or various other things that are lower profit margin, you might be very careful. And that's possibly why this um, supply uh, problem is sustaining so long, is that they know that it's not, it 
well, they're unsure how long it's going to last for. Uh, the longer it lasts for, and if they can build up some money, they might go, okay, let's go for revenue mm-hmm. now. And let's focus less on profits and more on revenue and growth. Uh, because lots of companies like to show that they're growing. Um, even if, even sometimes at the expense of profits. But, you know, how, how, it's very, you know, the global environment is very unpredictable. Who knows where we're going to be by the end of the year? And yeah, I c- so Evan Froley, I think I want to continue this conversation with this though. So Evan Froelich writes in and he says, my question is about speed or with Amy, AMD seemingly being hell bent on almost Apple rates of product launches combined with the fact that they don't seem to be slowing down their progress. Well, it got me thinking about Lovelace from NVIDIA and how it seemingly came to be after Hopper was floating around, but is rumored to come before now. Is this NVIDIA's hand being forced to follow AMD's lead when it comes to smaller but more consistent product refreshes, much like how iPhones are released? Do you think that's what Intel is also doing with Rocket Lake being followed by Alder Lake only six to eight months apart? Is this change in product cadence sustainable? So actually, I want to answer part of this first. Well, Rocket Lake was supposed to come out in January, but it had power issues. So that's why it's coming out so close to Alder Lake. And then Alder Lake's also being moved up as much as possible in quarter three because it's the first time Intel may be competitive with AMD CPUs in years. So they need Alder Lake out as soon as possible. But I'll answer that part. Like, What would you say to this like release schedule and NVIDIA and AMD competing with each other? Well, so, since you mentioned Alder Lake, I had a thought on that. Would you say that mm-hmm. realistically, rather than what Intel's marketing would say, that Alder Lake is actually... <laughs> More targeted at the high end, um, you know, with DDR5 support, it's going to be perhaps more of a premium product, at least in the short term, uh, compared to Rocket Lake. And so then, well, if you ask Intel's marketing, all of their products are the best, <laughs> most premium of course, of course. products you could ever have. Don't pay attention to those benchmarks, by the way. Intel's marketing wants you to know that these aren't real-world benchmarks. And also, real-world benchmarks are now not good either, that you should just listen to them. You know, So I, I would actually say, and, that, and, and I mean it as a joke, but I'm also not joking. Like it, Consistently, what I hear more and more from people at Intel is that the marketing department is completely drunk and doesn't understand what a CPU even is. So I I think let's just leave that at that, whatever Intel's marketing is doing, because from what I'm hearing about Rocket Lake, look, it's going to slot into the same price slots of Comet Lake. So they're going to take that eight core and try to charge it 500 or more. They're going to take another eight core, try to charge 400 or more. They're going to try to keep the same price points and slot in their products in the same place. And then the same goes for Alder Lake. So is Alder Lake a more high-end product? Yeah, I think so. Obviously, I think it has a real chance of competing well with Zen 3 or even possibly competing well with Zen 3 Plus. But I I don't know how much of that is going to be a deliberate action so much as they finally made something good, right? Because <laughs> my understanding is that, and this will be in a leak video, I don't know if it'll come out before now or after this podcast, but like part of my Alder Lake information is it most likely... Right. The bad news about Rocket Lake is they're going to slot it into the same price points as the previous gen. But I think they might do the same with Alder Lake. So even if the top i9 beats the 5900X, they might still charge the same price as the i9 Rocket Lake. Right. So I don't know if that changes how you think about it. Right. Like, is it a more premium product? Yes. But from what I'm hearing, most motherboards might still use DDR4, by the way. 
Um, and they're probably going to charge the same price, but I think that's less of a factor of them trying to be good price performance and more of a factor of Intel just stubbornly insisting all i9s cost 500, all i7s cost 400, all i5s cost 300. I think Intel just insists on keeping the same price points and Alder Lake, unlike Rocket Lake, will actually be good. Yeah, I think perhaps if we put the marketing aside, the, the, the kind of get the closeness between Rocket Lake and Alder Lake is more acceptable if you if we think of Alder Lake as actually genuinely a more interesting, more compelling product. It's it's oh, it um, is, yeah. you know to, to me it feels more like competing more with Ryzen nine and Rocket Lake more with five and mm-hmm. seven. In an, if if we ignore the if we ignore what marketing and the pricing that feels closer to what it really is. So so Apple. Mm-hmm. Huh, yeah, I think a lot of people would like to be able to do what Apple is doing, but they can just buy their way uh, to a large degree. And the, uh, but I think they've also delivered. It helps a lot that Apple are vertically integrated, so they don't have to persuade other people to package some chip in another system. They are producing the whole system. So they don't have mm-hmm. they they can go okay we have this chip that's going to go on this circuit board that's going to go in this device, and they can plan that all as one thing and they can pro well unless TSMC completely screw up in terms of yields they can probably accept some variation in yields and things like that they can they can I mean they probably don't want to but uh, you know they, they probably would not be happy if showing a, a huge shift in profitability, but they can probably absorb some of it, or maybe the way the pricing agreement work with TSMC uh, uh, kind of disguises that. But if you completely arrange your whole product design around that cadence, you can probably do it. Well, Apple obviously do it, but could AMD do it? Well, they do it to a little degree, but they are... I think they're being a little bit more careful with where they're trying to target growth. So that whenever, yes. whenever they, whichever chip they're prioritizing, they, they kind of decide, okay, we think we need the biggest benefit here now because they're targeting quite a few different sorts of markets. So AM, Apple is very much consumer, whereas AMD, they have a lot of professional buyers. And that's a very different sort of market to consumer buyers. And they have x86, they have, um, you know GPUs that they have, you know FPGAs now, um, and they all have different priorities. And from AMD's point of view, it's what will give us the best return on an investment, um, particularly considering their size. If they knew they could dominate the market safely, then you can effectively organize your whole development process around that cadence. And I think. You know, they would like to be able to, but it's just uh, where they are right now, it's less practical. Um, although there does feel to be a bit of a kind of a rush hour in terms of AMD's products. At Yes. And- well, I don't think they want to uh, screw around anymore. And I think they've even publicly said in some interviews that, no, they really do want to have a big product launch every six months, whether it's Radeon or Ryzen, and that... And this is something discussed with, I think, Daniel Nenny and one of the better, be, I shouldn't say, I should say one of the best, I think, Broken Silicon episodes where 
Apple really changed the mentality of a lot of silicon companies, including TSMC, where they said, you know what? We don't want you to double performance of every node. We just want a new node every year, right? So if the new node is only 10% better, fine. Just do what you can actually do. And, and that mentality has allowed TSMC to almost restart Moore's Law for themselves, whereas everyone else is scrambling. And I think... And, you know, I think that was really wise because iPhones can come out every year. And even if they're only 20% better, they've got a new one. They're not waiting two to three years like some of these graphics companies. And I would imagine AMD, now that they basically are a wing of TSMC, you could argue, that they are realizing that they just need to get RDNA 3 out whenever it's ready on a newish node, right? And that they just need to have a new product launch every 18, every 12 to you know 24 months for both Ryzen and RDNA because there is always a way to increase performance by 20% or more every about every year. And if you can do that, you should just do that. And I think NVIDIA is probably realizing that as well. Yeah. In AMD's case, it feels like you know, the early seven nanometer products were more, well, slightly exploratory. You know, you, you're moving to a new node. Um, the, initially, you would be probably be a bit more conservative. So now they're optimizing it. So now AMD know exactly how to get the best out of uh, TSMC seven nanometer. And they've got that, uh, they've gone through that optimization step. And now it's a lot more cost efficient for, you know, you get a better return on investment to do your products now, now that you've got that learning th- through. So the when we when we get to, you know, what's after seven nanometer, well, you know, most of the talks around five, but you know, there's these weird talks about six as well. But mm-hmm. you know, the early five nanometer stuff or whatever's next, the uh, will be more exploratory. So mm-hmm. uh, and then we'll probably get a, a similar uh, rush hour two years from now at five nanometer, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, AMD's bought up a lot of capacity, as I explained in one of my yeah. videos last year for five nanometers, starting this summer. They're making a lot of something, right? <laughs> right, so AMD will be using it for something, but I would just assume a lot of that early stuff is going to be for some sort of APUs, maybe a Zen 3 Plus, and also early testing for Zen 4. And that clearly the you know, priority will be on that. And if I think a push comes to shove for AMD, like if the question is, are we sure five nanometers ready yet for big dyes? They'll just choose six nanometer for RDNA three, just for to be safe and to allow Zen four to not, you know, have to fight for capacity. And I, I imagine NVIDIA will do the same. Like they're less likely to just choose five nanometer for Samsung. I think they're more likely to choose seven nanometer from Samsung or just make one die on TSMC and the majority of the lineup on Samsung eight nanometer again. Mm. I think safe is better though, because you don't want one of your competitors releasing something months before you because they can't sleep anymore. I mean, NVIDIA wasn't sleeping at the wheel, but I think they were definitely more relaxed during the Pascal and Turing days. I don't think they can afford to be relaxed anymore. I think NVIDIA realizes they need big or at least reliable increases every year. Or they will fall behind AMD because AMD is not screwing around. And they can... AMD is certainly getting mindshare. Let's... Yeah, although if they're constantly... Zen has done wonders for their mindshare. It's obviously all right. Very much at the high end. I mean, hardware... I think it was Hardware Unbox had they showed some statistics on what buyers have been doing. And there was an immense shift at the high end. Went from dominated mm-hmm. by Intel to dominated by AMD in one year. And that's amazing. 
the tech-savvy PC buyer has definitely shifted. But if AMD are capacity-constrained, hmm, maybe NVIDIA won't have to worry so much. What, that, that could be a weird consideration that's... They might say, well, actually, yeah. we don't have to be so desperate. Uh, but we shall see. Again, yeah, right? I, Samsung's 8 nanometer is good enough. I think they could afford to make GA102 at a version of it. It wouldn't be literally the same, but a version of it on TSMC 6 or 5 nanometer, well, probably not 5, but 6 or 7 nanometer, and then also make it on Samsung 8 nanometer and just cut down that version more, call that the 4070 or something. And they can afford to have this split capacity. They have the money to pay for all of those die designs that AMD doesn't. So that is that is just a natural advantage. I don't think people will care if they release one new version of GA102 on TSMC and it's like 30, 40% better. And they just call that the fourth RTX 4080 and 4090. And then they just make the same die on Samsung again, but it's a little, but it's, you know, maybe more tamed and, you know, less power hungry versions that are cut down. And they can just, most people buy below the 4080, and they can just have as much capacity at Samsung as they want. Well, not as much as they want, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah, but um, I'm not... Well, I can understand why they might do want to do what you're suggesting, but that this, unless they planned for that, started planning for that, like, two years ago, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Mm-hmm. It's just not possible. The, the timelines are just right. too, lo- too long. Which there is, there is some evidence they have, right? But it's just evidence. You know, <laughs> unless they have planned for that, it's like, you know, why? It's like when people complain, yeah, why don't they make more of this? It's like, well, they bought that capacity up two years ago. So, sorry. <laughs> well, I think that pretty much does it for that part of the discussion, though. To be honest, I think we've gone on <laughs> pretty, like, I don't want to say long enough, but I think that we've covered most of what we wanted to cover. There's some other things here that maybe we can get to in another episode, but I think we should start winding it down because it's getting a little late for me. And actually, you're in England, so I know it's getting really late for you. I'm sure we'll start getting loopy if we go on too much longer. But I guess the final thing I would ask, is there any other thing, one final thing you want to discuss before we close out the show? Well, since it came up earlier, and since it's been in the news the first few days, this idea of um, AMD coming out with new RDNA graphics card with two 80 cores CUs chips, uh, the tech press, as it were, particularly the online one, is a little too keen to repeat rumors without any kind of qualification, <laughs> analysis, filtering, or anything. And it's have you written? I mean, sometimes they literally repeat the same sentence three times in a row. Yeah. Right. I, I've run into it like, like they didn't even read if they, you know, word proofed their article. But yeah. yeah, go on. So, yeah. So, my initial thought is have you actually thought through what this means? Because even if we're, even if you take Big Navi and shrink it down to five nanometers, it's still going to be expensive. It's still going to be power hungry. So, are mm-hmm. you saying AMD is going to? go power mad and bring out a 500-watt $2,000 card, because that's the kind of ballparks you're talking about if they don't tweak this beyond what's being rumored. Yeah. And that's... I know. (laughs) Yeah, it just makes me want to... Because that's that's not a particularly helpful rumor. They may... For all I know, there's a perfectly legitimate kernel of truth to all of this, but it's probably not what you're thinking. So yeah, like, yeah, like I said, AMD could go power mad, but 
what's what use is a five hundred watt two thousand dollar card really? I mean, you could sell it to games developers and say, "This is our, you know, you can well for AI stuff, yeah, right? And- like it would be useful in data centers and for developers, right, who are already happy to buy four hundred watt cards. Well, for data centers, and maybe they just clock it a little lower, right? Maybe they just say, "Well, it's on a- it's ADCUs, but we clocked it lower, yeah, right." Which I don't think five nanometer is supposed to bring higher clock speeds, really. If anything, it might bring lower. Well, the TSMC said you, effectively you can either have a small increase in clock speeds or you can have a reasonable decrease in power consumption. Mm-hmm. So if AMD did go down this path, well, one way on, I, I, it would be a little strange for them to just go, yeah, like I said, power mad. But if we start thinking, well, what is more reasonable? Well, let's say they have a ATCU product on you know, five nanometers, one way or another, just theoretically. Well, if they, you would have that as you know a high-end card, and then if you want some kind of Halo product, you could do one with two chips. Well, okay, what could that realistically be like? Well, if you, mm. if you don't want a massive price gap, what you could do is instead of, you could say, you could take your 80 CU die, but you take the ones which only yield 60 CUs. And you, instead of you right, put, I was yeah. yeah. So you have 120 CUs that are active, and that would reduce your costs and it would reduce your power consumption. Now you've got something quite a bit more reasonable. I mean, it can, you can still sell it as a Halo product, but it actually makes some kind of commercial sense, um, unless AMD just want to really stick it to Nvidia, and that that doesn't really feel like their their style. Which I would say maybe. <laughs> yeah, it would feel like but, a, it would feel like a change in approach to AMD for, for to me for them to do that. They haven't really. Well, I will say this, you know, to play devil's advocate yeah. for if they would. Everything I've heard in the background is AMD was never planning to really compete in the high end with NVIDIA uh, Ampere. It's just Ampere is about 10% weaker than they thought, and RDNA 2 is 10% stronger. It turned out well. So they're like, eh, let's do it. Let's go for it. But they were always intending for RDNA 3 to be their try for the crown. So that's the one thing I will say is they are going for the crown with RDNA 3. Make no mistake, they're trying to win this time. And so it wouldn't surprise me if but but then also with what you say, I mean, they they might just disable the eight least efficient CUs on the die, and so they can keep the highest clocking ones that use the less, least amount of energy. And it's like, okay, so what? You're really taking two one an eighty watt? You can do that, and it uses as much energy as a thirty eight ninety. Apparently, that's okay, <laughs> you know. And, and then they might say, well, and then we're going to have another model that's maybe right dual 64 CUs. And Mm. that's going to be the real one that's like 300 watts, 320 watts. And then, of course, they can just put one IO die to one, you know, like 64 or 72 CU, one of the worst, maybe more leaky voltage yields of 72 CUs. They can make that just by itself with the IO die. And they could even take the 60 CU yield, although I, I would imagine it'd probably just go down to 64 at this point. Um, they take the 64 CU yields and they could even pair it with, instead of, I don't know, right, a 384-bit IO die, they pair it with a 256-bit IO die. Now they can save more money on RAM too. And then they could take that 256-bit IO die and also use it with a 40 CU, you know what I'm saying, and slower RAM. So there's a lot they can do with mixing and matching by having this, I think. And it, it, you could imagine, right, they could have just two IO dies, a 256-bit one, 
or maybe a 192-bit one, honestly, and a 384-bit one, and then a 40CU die and an 80CU die, and just mix and match those into 10 different cards. Yeah, it's essentially the, the chiplet approach gives you more cards in your hand. You can gives you more flexibility in, in the actual end product with potentially fewer actual chips to design. So it's, it's quite a nice approach, but it's not free. Um, so if, no. we go, if we go back to the, the rumor of these two 80-core uh, dies on one card, well, how are they going to communicate? They, there was nothing talking about that. Is there a separate IO die or are they going to directly connect to each other? They're going to directly connect to each other. That's a whole new interconnect that you're going to have to add to the chips. So that's extra space and extra you know, power consumption and so on. Although with something like Infinity Fabric, it wouldn't be too bad, but it would need to be a fast connection because unless you're going to duplicate memory or something weird like that, you're going to need fast crossover between the two chips. So that if one chip needs to access the memory that the other chip is talking to, it can do that quickly. Um, so you know, so you're going to need, you know, even with Infinity Fabric, you're going to need like effectively a quad X connect, a quad quad width connection or something yeah. like that. Um, so it's not going to come cheap. But if you start, if you instead you have an a separate I/O die and you essentially something almost like what they're doing with Zen two and Zen three then that mm-hmm. gives you some interesting options. And like you said, you know, you can have those IO dies if they're from, if global foundries can make them, they're going to be quite cheap. Yeah. And they, they, they wouldn't even be that different to what they're currently making, so not that hard to design. And if you want a true Halo product, well, you know, for your 120 CU or 160 <laughs> CU one, well, you could do an IO die with um, HBM. HBM. Yep, and that would yeah. be a very good use case for it, in fact. Uh, and remove some of the power usage then yep. that constraints. Yep. You know, now it goes from a 500 watt chip to maybe a f- sub 400. There you go. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, think of it this way, right? So if we think of the way Ampere is being designed right now, I mean, what we have, we have GA100, which is just data center, doesn't even have outputs for video. So they designed that. And then they also designed GA, actually, by the way, guys, they designed GA101, which is really a half GA100, just so you guys know. They just never released it because they don't have enough capacity. Uh, And then they designed GA102, which is, you know, 3080, 3090. I believe they probably designed a GA103, by the way. Also GA104, 106, and we know there's a 107. So these are seven different dies NVIDIA's design that are all being cut down and mixed and matched. And there's probably going to be a 108 as well, by the way. Well, if we think of AMD, all they would have to design is 80CU, 40CU, 192-bit, 256-bit, HBM 2E or HBM 3. They, they basically just design three I.O. dies, two compute unit dies. And they're designing half as many dies, which is good for them because they don't have as much money as NVIDIA. And yet they can compete with NVIDIA's entire product stack. Even if there's a performance penalty, I think it's probably worth it to be able to do that. If they can get it working. And that's another thing I would emphasize. AMD's been trying to get this working with GPUs for years. It's just not until RDNA 3 that I believe they've completely figured it out. Right? It's a lot harder to do multi-die and have the OS see it as one card than it is with uh, a CPU that basically already is capable of doing that. I think having a central I/O makes that a lot easier. You, you then the CPU yes. is only talking to one thing. You have you have a symmetric memory system, which makes the software side easier. Um, you know, we saw AMD go through more than one iteration of 
multi-chip stuff already. So the original Epic was uh, essentially two by two, um, which mm-hmm. seems to be what Intel have been trying to do with their yes. XE stuff. And so AMD has already shifted away from that. So you could say that AMD have given up on that, but Intel is still trying. So do you... And I believe that's what they're doing with Sapphire Rapids as well, by yeah. the way. So you could say, well, if we go by what's actually successful in the market, what AMD have done with Zen 2 and Zen 3 is currently the only, seems to be the only successful path. So seeing something very similar, you know, different in some ways, I'm sure, but something similar on the GPU side would make a lot of sense. And yeah, the, the, just the cost to bring a new chip to market, even if it's a tiny variation of something you had before, is a lot. And I think a lot more than most people realize. You know, hundreds of millions, uh, potentially, depending on the size, just to do a small variation. And this, you know, eliminates a lot of the problems that they've had to deal with with RDNA 2's launches, where they're like, well, we're selling as many RDNA 2's as we can make. They have big old profit margins. They're not even sure if they should launch uh, Navi 22 because Navi 21 is doing so well. If they just have one chiplet they can mix and match for half of the lineup, it's less of a concern. Yeah, much, it, much, much, much less of a concern. It makes it makes allocation of resources a lot easier. What I'll say is I tweeted last year that a couple sources that have never been wrong for me say that at the very least RDNA 3 has an IO die. So hmm. that's at least something. And I believe the same is true of CDNA 2. So this is months ago. Who knows if a... Because let, let us keep in mind that what I'm saying... I'm not kidding when I say AMD's been trying to get this work with RDNA 1 and RDNA 2, and it just didn't work, guys. I'm like, I'm telling you, they were trying to. So that's the only caveat I would say is they couldn't get it working for RDNA 1 and RDNA 2. There's a chance they may say, let's just ax this and release a monolithic RDNA 3, which is kind of what happened with four-way hyper-threading for Zen 3. They were kind of considering adding that, had a bunch of problems, said, ax it, let's just take the big IPC increase, you know? So. I just want to say that, that number one, things could change. But number two, as far as I'm aware, they do have an IO die. So go on. Sorry. Yeah, we're talking about stuff that's at least a year away. But uh, well, I I would guess so, because if it's not... I think it is about a year away. If it's not taped out, if if AMD had taped it out, I would imagine they would have mentioned it. So if it's not taped out yet, it's probably (laughs) at least a year away. It's probably at minimum... At best, it's going to appear. At, the, min- at a minimum, it's a year away, or they would have to announce they're taping it out in two months, yeah, within two yeah, months, yeah. which I don't think they will. So, yeah. So going, going back, the pure economics of it makes chiplets a smart move. Just gives It just gives you some nice flexibility. It reduces your fixed costs. It gives you more financial room to maneuver. And it, make, it also makes product delivery easier because if you've got fewer chips to ramp, sorry, fewer different chip variations to RAM. Uh, it just makes life easier. And so, you know, they could bring out, you know, an R- when we get to RDNA 3 and they, they have, you know, they have a whole load of cards available, they might go, well, the demand on this for these cards are particularly high. Okay, let's shift our chiplets to there and we'll maybe let uh, these other products, which the demand's not so high, they, they can just get less. But if you're physically making different calls for different products, Different, uh, different chips for different products, uh, then you have to plan that, you know, six months in advance at minimum. You know, you, the, the timelines are just completely different. But if you can go, oh, today we'll sh- put these chiplets in this card, 
which is low end. Mm-hmm. And today we'll put these chiplets in this car, which is high end. You can do that, you know, on within a month. Uh, or you can, right. or you can even lead it, lead it up to you know your AIBs. You know that's another possibility, and you just give the AIBs more options, which will probably make them happy and uh, more likely to support you. For example, right. And if you like look at Zen three, for example, if for some reason rocket like i fives and i sevens are performing far better than expected, like let's say they do crush everything in AMD's mid range, they can launch a 5700X, 5750X, like, you know, within a month. They don't have to design some new die or cut something. Like, it's just literally, like, it's just sitting there. They, they, you know, if they want to release a cheaper version of the 12 core, they can do that. There's a lot of flexibility in having this chiplet design that, again, they, I'm just, again, guys, they've been trying to get into graphics cards. It just hasn't been easy. And if you think about it, the IO die is key and probably the infinity cache and then the Zen 3 things they learn from, you know, Zen 3 and its cache enhancements are probably key to what's going to make it possible with RDNA 3. They probably tried kind of a more NUMA system with what we saw with Zen 1 with RDNA 1. It just didn't work. They needed an IO die with lots of cache is probably what they needed to make this work. Yeah. Um, the, the, the infinity caches sounds weird, but it's a, well, it's a big surprise to me. If you'd asked me a year ago if I would have expected that, I would have said no. Me too. You know, I, I got in arguments with a lot of sources that kept insisting 256-bit around late summer last year. And I was like, really? Really 256-bit? Really, this is at least as strong as a 3080? Really? <laughs> and they kept saying yes. And then finally, there was the infinity cache. And I was like, okay, now I can see where this is coming from. I didn't see that coming at all. Yeah. And even then, it was still I was still skeptical of it. Right, until I got just enough sources that it's like, all right, this has to be real. And that's probably a, that could even be the, the effectiveness of the Infinity Cache could actually be a side effect of how software, well, sorry, game design has shifted as it's become, mm. as the graphics have become more complicated and go through further steps. And you start saving off little temporary bits of uh, image data during the pipeline and reading it back later. The scope for uh, data locality, which is what caches depend on, increases. So it's possible that it's quite possible that you know Infinity Cache, if they had the, it physically a couple of years ago, it might not have worked so well simply because of differences in software. If that is true, then it might actually become more effective with time. Perhaps we shall see. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. If um, you know, it was just a again, not right place at the right time, but like there's reasons they didn't do this before. And there's reasons it probably worked so well. Now, I think a lot of people are like, whoa, they thought of this. It's like, they've thought of similar stuff before, right? That It's just now is when it works really well, I think. And, you know, shows just the importance of knowing how your applications run on your hardware. You know, you really need to understand what's going on for real on your hardware to understand how to, you know, what is the software doing? How's it working? What is the data pattern? What is the potential? That is very hard thing to do. You know, you've got to. You've also got to predict project out a few years ahead, and so what are people going to do, and how do we best design our hardware to make the best use of that? That's quite hard thing to do. Uh, you really need to understand, the pro, you know, what is the actual profile of the software 
or the average profile, at least because you, you know, you've got to design for the average game to some degree. Which is to go back a bit to something I mentioned earlier about, you know, what would I do if I had a graphics, you know, a high-end graphics card and a bunch of games to play with? I'd profile it. Probably, mm-hmm. probably you'd need something a bit more advanced to do the sort of things like the choice of whether Infinity Cash is going to work or not. But yeah, it would be a start. It would be, you know, it would be something I, I would probably try to investigate if, if I could, just out of curiosity, because I just like, well, this was a surprise. So how's this work? Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, NVIDIA and Intel are doing the exact same thing. <laughs> they're, they're trying to figure out how does it work? And, you know, they might well copy it if they can figure it out. Yeah, and I mean, just for an example for Intel, I believe Lakefield was that, like testing exactly where to go with how to section up the Alder Lake organization with hyper-threading on big cores combined with little cores. I've, I've been told they might even market that as hybrid threading. Um and like Lakefield with its one big core and then three, like four little cores. That was a big testing the waters with real world applications to see where should we go with the big little design on x86. There's a, there's a lot of products like that too, I imagine as well. And that's actually one of the things FPGAs get used for uh, is simulating mm-hmm. chips in advance. I mean, there's only so much you can do. You wouldn't be able to simulate big Navi on. Uh, FPGAs, but you would be able to simulate sure. a tiny bit of it at reasonable quality, which would give you some idea. You know, it helps you verify your design in advance, and just be and but also do performance estimates. So, you know, trying to simulate a something like Big Navi in software, <laughs> you're going to need a pretty big supercomputer for that. I mean, AMD might be able to afford it, but you know, that's a lot. That's a lot of effort to simulate something like that realistically. But if you can get an FPGA and simulate a, a part of a chip to some degree, you can at least verify some bits. Maybe not something as high level as Infinity Cache, but at least some of, the, some of your inner, inner workings. Um, you know, FPGAs uh, get all sorts of weird usages. Well, you know, I'm going to be honest. I think that's something we could discuss along with about a dozen other subjects <laughs> in another podcast. And I'm actually coming to the conclusion that I will probably want to have you on at least once a year because of how broad of subjects we can talk about. So I hope you will consider that. But I do think that the last bit of conversations about MCM design and RDNA through were really good. And I think let's close it out now before I start getting really tired. <laughs> well, yeah, I also have to be up for work tomorrow quite soon. Well, eight hours or so, but yeah, I can manage. Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely like to be um, back again. And you know, as you mentioned, I've been working on these articles. Maybe we can get them published. Yeah, I mean, you're doing one on RDNA 3 and chiplets. I think that'd be, a, you know. Yeah, I've kind of, kind of spoiled it. Yeah, but that's good, you know, I think. Well, I mean, as long as it gets your point across, shorter is better. And, you know, I can just send that to Carbon Cry maybe or read through it again myself. And yeah, I mean, I hope so. And uh, to the reader mails we didn't get to, let me just say, remember, you can submit these if you support Moore's Law is Dead on Patreon, but we will save these. I'm actually having quite a few programmers on over the next month. So some of these I'll probably just repurpose into those episodes or save them for mailbag episodes of Die Shrink or, of course, you know, the next time you come on. So, so rest assured, people who ask questions, some of these are going to be saved for the future. But otherwise, uh, yeah, I think that's going to do it. Uh, thanks for coming on. You know, I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, 
As always, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Yeah, nice to be here. Thank you. The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website, Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, the Moore's Law is Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. And at higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit. And give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Matthew McMullen, Telos, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Ruff, I love you, Lynn and Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Al-Khwari, Frederick Lau, James Crasta, Justin Paris, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herod, Brad Medlin, Phil S., Courtney Elliott, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, TSPCFS, JBG, Travis Gooding, Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo Kinkilo, Fatboy Disru, Daniel Hyde, Rad Dad, Tara Reed, Jack O'Neill, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Juan Garcia, Sean Ballmer, My Name is Nobody, Robert, Elethros, Telos, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchik, Ivan 214, John Jameson, Benjamin Cannon, Matthew Lane, Divider Symbol, Jan Rauner, Robert Ducks, Drita Full, Allie Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Sean Grant, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Hardforum.com, Sam MacArthur, Total Silo, Sol Carner, Michael Casa, Andrew S., Blake, Aaron Keith, Kerry Baldino, Endless Loggins, Tom Sanfilippo, Justice Brennan, Viking R., Trevor Powers, Stu, Alenia, Nanian, Daniel Nishpal, Franco Frederick, Hardware Numbers, Alex Carastillo, Dark Rain 2049, Leighton Perry, Joseph Caraman, Carlos Valdez, Carnivore Bear, Luca, Zebra Zebra, Zlicky, Matt and Porchegi, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Garanadin, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canoes Jr., Christopher Foster, Kiwi Phil, Joaquin Hagen, Sarah Light, Anthony Gareffa, Matthew Griffin, Alex, Joseph Loria, Carl Marco, Deke, Jeezy Raman, Raul Abeneni, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Chris Williams, Ryan Denisque, Dave McCoy, Valko Malev, Gabe Langner, Paul B., Morton Svensson, Andrew, Thomas Somers, Maurice Courtois, Matthew J. Link, Scott Reif Schneider, My Sharona, Aaron, Roman, Jacob Stankowitz, Jack Pym, Wakir Khan, Eshildar Epstein, Stefan Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Charles Antoine Futo, Peter Moore, Chris Lakata, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, James Kitchens, Kevin Chen, Shakir, Dean Despofsky, 
Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, Arpit Sharma, and Loris Correa. And of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. 